This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is my friend, Dwight Yoakam. Dwight, good to be talking to you. Good to talk to you, buddy. I'm, I'm always flattered you, you will consider me a friend, and, and thank you. From the time we last saw one, I think we were in the bottom of the... It was pre-COVID, because we were in the building over at, the, uh, at XM when we all were going up. You were passing me in the night on an elevator. You were coming from doing your show, and I was just starting my, you know, my nocturnal vampire kind of, you know. Okay, people can't see. This is audio only, but you're wearing a hat with STP. Yeah, and I just don't have my Foster Grants on. You know, Richard Petty. You won't see. Remember, you won't see me driving without him. <laughs> well, I just remember in the '60s, STP was such a big deal. And then people started talking, you know, what did it mean? And it was stop teenage pregnancy and everything. <laughs> no, scientifically treated petroleum. I do know that, but, you know, in the pre-internet era, it took <laughs> years to figure, to find that out. When I walk around with this hat, tell, I always let people go, cool hat. And I go, not the Stone Temple Pilots. <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah, that's what it is. How many baseball style hats do you have? Too many. You can't get the good ones anymore. The problem is they want the low crown. Look, you and I, we've never really gotten deep into. What year are you born? Are you born? Are you older than me? I'm, or younger, three, so I'm three years older. I was born in '53. You were born in '56. '56. Yes, but we're in a window. I've I came, I think, from a, a point of uh, origin that left me with the uh, the cynical side of the '60s. You know, I kind of came out of it because I graduated high school in 74. You got out in 71, or 70, 70. 70. No, 70, yeah. Would you graduate early? Well, yeah, I skipped a grade way back, whatever. Oh, I was going to see. I want you to show off. <laughs> yeah, 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 you set that up for me pretty well. You were scheduled. To, yes, he's an advanced placement kid, this guy. So, so I, on the other hand, should have been held back a year because my birthday's Almost November. It's October 23rd, and now they wouldn't have let me go. 
I would have done better academically I, as I look back at it. I, because I was, you know, I used to, we get in junior high and you, you had, you know, uh, no singular class that you were stuck in and you could do whatever. And I had study hall periods and I skipped them. You know where I didn't go outside and, you know, screw around and smoke with friends or anything because I never smoked. But I was in the library. They had a library in the junior high. And I would sit there and, and just read the encyclopedia. And when I thought back about it, after I did some college, you got in, and went to Ohio State, my favorite courses were, were you know, lecture courses, you know, things where there was a full professor do, dealing in rhetoric, you know. And, and, and then these were, because you went to a small school, right? No, my high school, go, well, everything's relative. I grew up in the suburbs. High school had 1,800 people. Well, I had 2,000. We were in Columbus by that point. Right. So I was a 2,000 you know, person high school. It was a, a spread over the three the three classes. It was a sophomore, uh, junior, senior. But meaning university, though, college, you went to... Uh, I went to a very small college in Vermont. It had 1,800 students, and that was in the dark right. era, pre-internet, pre-DVD, pre-cable. Like, you had to entertain yourself. Well, I was at Ohio State uh, when it was 61,000 students on one campus. It was a small city in itself. And, uh, uh, but so I had, so you had TAs, you know, usually, you know, grad students that were, the, you know, for a freshman course or a sophomore course, you, you pick those up. But once a week, you would end up in that, in a grand lecture hall with a, the full professor, you know, who ran, you know, that it was, you know, sometimes head of a department, whatever. I found myself really fascinated with that when I, and I, Boy, we just went off on. I took you down a rabbit hole here. That you no, no, no. That uh, digression energy. is a spice of life. I got a lot of questions. Let's start at the end. So how hard end, okay. was how hard was it to drop out of college? Not at all. I kind of did it by default. I was just kind of just quit going to classes, and there was no formal kind of you know removing of myself. I just uh, I left, and 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 I came. Well, I'd gone to Nashville first, and then a buddy of mine, a kid that uh, was a year younger, kid, uh, a guitar player named Bill Alves, uh, who was in stage band with me in high school, uh, a year behind my my class, and he was in this greaser band that we had had out of the theater department that, uh, you know, because Sha Na Na and all that had blown up, you know, in the ensuing years after Woodstock, <clears throat> they kind of, you know, that whole revival, the throwback stuff of the fifties, <clears throat> and at this this uh, variety show that uh, the theater department had at my high school, um, I fronted this band, and it became Dwight and the Greasers because they were all gassed back with duck tails and everything, and we actually opened uh, in Columbus at the Lowe's Theater the weekend they opened American Graffiti. They had us perform. Wow. People That's pretty did, cool. People, well, no, but people didn't know what to, you know, it's like <laughs> between the showings, the screenings, and it was one of those old, you know, 800-seat, modern, but right. that big span of, you know, not, not like the Cinerama Dome, but but big. And we were this tiny thing down there jumping around between the screenings of the different, you know, <laughs> of graffiti and doing that. It was kind of, yeah, it was kind of interesting and weird. Um, but... I uh, so Bill Alves, the guitar player who was in that and had been in stage man. Uh, a couple of years after I was out of high school and was at Ohio State, uh, 
you notice my colloquialism there. It, it, my granny would always, down in southeast Kentucky, where I was born, would say, are you all doing well up in Ohio? Ohio, very <laughs> properly say. And I'd say, you know, we would, those of us from Columbus and south to the river, it was A-H-I-A. It was like, Ohio. <laughs> it's like, so Ohio State. And, I, you know, I left. And my intention was I went back to L.A. City out here. I actually had better professors. I had guys at L.A. City College that were full Ph.D. teaching, you know, where I was picking up, you know, sophomore year stuff. You know, I thought, well, I'll pick up, you know, where I left off there and do an AA and then go to UCLA. I thought, I'll transfer over. And that got interrupted by what I was doing, you know, finally in the clubs out here and then having a moment of, you know, just seeing the reality of what I'd come to the, you know, West Coast for. But Billy Alves, and back to the, finish this, said to me in the winter of 77, he said, hey, you're going to go with me. I'm going to my – he had an aunt and uncle that lived out in, here in Tustin, the other end, you know, down in Orange County. He said, I'm going out there. You're going with me. And he had this 1970 Volkswagen Bug, and we loaded everything I owned, which wasn't much, but we had, you know, duffel bags on the roof and drove uh, from Columbus on I-70. You know, we took that highway west. And uh, he spent a couple, three months – and went home by July 4th. He was out. And uh, I stayed. I didn't even have a bicycle. You know, I rode the bus, and we ended up in Long Beach, living on the beach. And I rode the bus to Bullock's Lakewood. Are you, have you been out here long enough to remember Bullock's, right? The I, I, yeah, Bullock's. absolutely. I've been out here longer <clears throat> yeah. than you have. Yeah. So Since I, the mid-'70s. So 77, I got here, arrived, and I ended up working there, and I worked at moving furniture for a time, and then I drove air freight. Okay. But anyway, um, so, yeah, I, I ended up out here and stayed and planted my Well, let's go back a few stand. seconds. You uh -huh. brought up the fact that you were born in November and the fact that today- Well, late October, November, late no, October. No, but hold, hold on one second. Since you were one of the youngest kids in the class, did that affect how people treated you and your personality? I, maybe, maybe. I think back, I never got bullied. I was kind of the wallflower kid. That was what was weird when I got to, uh, I remember at the end of elementary, I was in a, a large, old school McGuffey, uh, elementary, junior high com combined. And so they would have a talent show, and I was up in there till fifth grade. Uh, and this is in Columbus. Like I said, we had made the move, you know, out of Appalachia at that point. And, up in, and, I, and for anybody that wants me to say Appalachia, I ain't going to do it. <laughs> like, I, no, somebody started chastising me on the internet. How can you, being from here, not say Appalachia? I was like, I'm, yeah, I've never heard it called Appalachia, except if you're in Florida, you know, Appalapicola or whatever the swamps and the lakes are. Down. Anyway, and Stuart Copeland would have said Appalachian Spring, right? You know, that the... So, in any event, this is a great book, by the way. Have you read United States of Appalachia? I haven't, but if we're going to digress, I remember my roommate first year in college, his girlfriend went to Appalachian State, which was in western Pennsylvania. Oh, Alapatria. yeah, the other one is in North what? Carolina, Appalachian State, right? Oh, that's what I meant. Shit. Yeah, North Carolina. Boone, North Carolina. You no, know, I'm confusing two parts of my life. But you're right. I had friends who went to Appalachian State who I, I lived with. I do that myself. 
<laughs> on more than one occasion, I confuse. But also, know, there's another. Al- I can't even remember what we say this so many times. It's like a tongue twister. Appalachicola in Florida, too. That's what I, yeah, which to me, that's where I heard Appalachia. And it's like Appalachia. It's where I was, where I'm, and I was born there. Anyway, so I mean, I've, that's, so whatever. Um, I ended up, uh, well, you started to say something. Where, how I was affected by that? I didn't think about it at the time. Because, you know, I was going to be five years old, and you, know, you told, you know, 19, whatever that was, 61, uh, I guess. I went to kindergarten. And uh, I was the oldest kid in my family. I didn't have an older sibling, which had a lot to do with how I, how I uh, embraced music or didn't. In other words, the Beatles were a little beyond me, uh, and I said to Mike Nesmith one time, you know, I was a huge Monkees fan. And I probably got one of the best educations I could have ever had with those first two Monkees albums, now that I know what went on with that, right? That it's the Wrecking Crew. I'm listening to Carol King, right. Right. Neil Diamond, the writers, right? John Stewart, people, and Boyce and Hart, you know, do backwards inversions of Paperback Writer when they do, you know, Last Train to Clarksville's opening. And I was down in the basement with a half-baked drum kit, because I had a real snare drum, and then we had one of those sort of not real, the rest of the kit my parents couldn't afford, you know, to, to do that. And, and But I had that, and I had my mother ran a, she was at that point working at a place called Columbus Auto Parts, a factory that supplied stuff out of Detroit. I used to joke and say that our family didn't make it to Detroit. We only got gas enough to get to Columbus, and... And had to make her stand there. It was actually that there were family that was there, you know, on her side, out of Kentucky that had moved up ahead. And you know, uh, I don't know if you've read uh, Hillbilly Elegy. I'm sure you have. Uh, yeah, I have the book. And <clears throat> I told Ron Howard I did the reading with him, and uh, he had asked me about doing a role, and I, I couldn't schedule wise do it. But I, what, the thing that I was remiss about was that they weren't doing it as a series. I thought as a series, it would give the breadth and width of that life and what he was, you know, the story he was telling as opposed to a film, which we got four hours, right? We can get into this with we you. We go as streaming. long as you want. Digress no, all you I, want. <laughs> no, but your streaming observations are the greatest because it's maddening to me that we have to wait. Like it's 1966 for the next episode of something. I want to strangle the TV when I look up on Amazon. And Amazon used to not do it. Right. They're going backwards. Now they're doing it. It's like, what in the... Anyway, so I'm an oldest kid of three, <clears throat> so I'm kind of on my... Where, where were you in family line? Were you... Do you have an older no, sister? No, no, no. But since you're the oldest kid to three, yeah. how old are the... Uh, other the, two, the next what two were sex close. It's, it's three little Indians. It's like two years separate my brother and then three to my sister. Uh, you know, so three total. Right. There's still that hierarchy because of school. I'm two grades ahead of him and three grades ahead of her, you know. But usually anyway. the oldest, my younger sister's really into birth order. I'm the middle. Usually all the hopes and dreams in the family are in the oldest. Yeah. No, they, and it's a lot of weight. <laughs> you know, it's like, even if it's only two, they make that. And... Uh, you're the middle. You went outside the home to seek attention. That's, <laughs> that's what I'm still seeking attention. Well, no, there was, there was, there was, uh, well, there was a great book 
my, my, I think my sophomore year of college at Ohio State, that that uh, uh, it was called firstborn, secondborn. I've never been able to find it since I, I've looked on Amazon. Every, firstborn, secondborn, sibling birth order traits. And it broke down, you know, and, and in large families it goes in subgroups. You know, they, they use the Kennedy family as an example of there's a second oldest. There's a My mom came from six. My wife, Emily, uh, who actually shot photos of us and videoed us that right. night that we had you do the Beatles song with us. Right. Um, we, she is the oldest daughter of 12 kids. So that's a whole other dynamic because she becomes the mother hint, right? The last three could legitimately kids. be her own. Yeah. Yeah. They were, well, there was a Lebanese Catholic family that on one side and she Danish Irish on the other. And, uh, <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, I remember one time I went to camp and, the counselors, my brother hadn't been there. The previous year I had gone, I was old, you know, going to a summer, you know, uh, a youth camp, church youth camp. So I went down there, and this is, I think, back, because at the time, it's just the kind, you know, it's your life. You don't know any different, right? You don't know, there's no counterpoint to it. And uh, I went down there. It's in southern Ohio. It was an old, it was an old, uh, I think, May have predated World War One, but it was an old. It was called Fort Hill, in southeastern Ohio, between uh, Cincinnati and Portsmouth, along you know, and and you know, kind of north of the Ohio River. Beautiful down there in the hills, and they had these uh, huge cabins that all the you know the, the boys would stay in, and the girls were on the other side of the camp on the other. And I had a ball the first year I was there. The next year that I went. My brother was of age that he could go. So he came with, right? The middle, right? And uh, <laughs> they called my parents after about the third day and said, look, uh, they said, is there something wrong? Because my brother had some issues when he was young. He had had some convulsions, and he had some, well, I don't know what meds. He probably on Ritalin. I don't know now what, you know, what the, in the 50s, 60s, you know, were giving kids whatever. He was... He was an ADD kid, you know, uh, became actually later classically uh, flew jets. You know, he was a, a charter jet pilot and, you know, really smart guy, brilliant uh, kid. He, but, but he had his, his struggles, you know, and he, uh, and he wasn't taking his medicine. He had something he had to take. I can't remember what it was. And it made me sick at my stomach. I could, they called my parents. They said, something wrong is something wrong with Ron. I said, no, no, it's it's the other. It's your son Dwight. You gotta let him off the hook. He's miserable. He won't. Go, he's worried to death. The other kid's running around having a ball, you know. And he's probably not taking whatever he's supposed to take. But so that's what was. You know, that's what you're living with when you said that the hero kid. And I read also that the, the firstborns will either stay very close to the family, or they leave and never come back. And I. I fell in the latter category finally. I kind of left, came to the West Coast. Now, I had a great relationship with my parents that till, to my dad's death. My mother is still alive, thank goodness. She's 89, will be 90 coming up in, uh, in uh, this next spring. But she, uh, and I had, as I, again, perspective for me over the years and growing to know other people. And I was, I was reading, you know, because I get your, 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 your online letter and 
the what is it? The guest, the new book you're reading. Yeah, you're Emma Klein, the guest. It sounds great. It sounds fantastic, actually, because I'm a fan of like you know Pete Dexter and and the writing. Did you ever read Spooner by Pete Dexter? He wrote Paris Trout and Deadwood. He wrote the book in the early '90s. I I have not read it. Yeah, Deadwood is great. It's one of the most brilliant Western descript- descriptions of the old West that I've ever come across. They attempted it twice. The first one was Walter Hill in the 90s with, with Jeff Bridges. And they, as soon as I heard the title, I was like, okay, they missed the mark. They called it Wild Bill. And that's one foot in old school. And then the early 2000s, they actually did the series. HBO did Deadwood. And they, right. they got close. But it's still not the same visceral kind of element that, that Pete Dexter captured in that. And uh, so my parents... <clears throat> were uh, because you talking about the guest and it was really interesting what you were saying about that kind of personality and, and especially if you don't grow up within that you know and I had they were lacking my parents but they were never for a moment ever ever malicious to any one of the three of us and we knew every day they loved us and I think back about the lacking of Whatever, you know, and maybe not being held back a year, you know, and I, I probably would have done, you know, I would have been grown a little more, you know. What, what's the, is it in um, Outliers where he talks about, or is it uh, uh, the other one that he wrote before? Um, well, Outliers is the one he talks about with the best uh, soccer players the hockey, after the hockey players. Pl- the, the hockey, hockey players, right. Yeah, the hockey, that's Outliers, because Tipping Point was the earlier one that was about, right. you know, yeah, yeah. But which deals with the hush puppy issue, right? Remember the the, the the kids in South, like in Lower East Side, the hipsters couldn't afford cool shoes. They started buying hush puppies and it blew hush puppies up. But him We're talking, talking about, about the Gladwell books in case people don't know. Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell, you know, brilliantly written stuff. And he, uh, uh, I just forgot my point. What was it? What was I referencing of Gladwell and Outliers? He was talking in Blink, which was the second book, that if you were born late, all the great hockey oh, players right. the, were born in the right. first half of the year. We take them because they're bigger. You know, at that age, you're physically bigger. So I was never, and I was a you know, slight skinny kid. I wasn't, I wasn't small, but I wasn't, you know, like a guy going to be 6'4". You know, I ended up being roughly right six feet tall, but it was like, so with that age, in answer to the question, not succinctly answering it, but with all the tangents I can muster, it was, I, at the time, I thought, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. You know, at four years and three quarters, I went into, you know, the school and was always the youngest kid in the class, you know, one of the you know, youngest. There were probably kids born in November and December, actually, when I think back to that time, but not many. And... It was later, like in fifth grade, there was this talent show. I was—I mentioned that, and uh, I was a, a crossing guard, a safety patrol kid, you know. And like, fifth oh yeah, grade. that was a great honor. The, oh no, no, they let you do it, right? And there was training. I remember after that afternoon, because they held it in the afternoon. I went down and played a monkey. I played. I'm not your stepping stone. And my class voted me to go down to the to the to the you know variety show down there in the uh, the big auditorium, the combined auditorium, the junior high and, and elementary, and um, do it. And I remember the older kids, you know, kids that were, 
you know, 14 coming across the crosswalk and look at me and go, hmm, kid, that wasn't bad. <laughs> I'm standing <laughs> with my little flag. So that was the first handhold, right, of, of, of actually thinking, huh, Well, it's funny yeah, you mention this because sense. I always had a history since I was a year younger than everybody. The I would get along with the older people. When I was in college, whatever, it's sort of a similar thing. But let, well, let's go through a few other things. Okay. Yeah. You said you can't get a good hat anymore. What's a good hat and what can you get? Well, a high crown. This high, the old classic 70s right. look. You and I know the truck stop hat was 20 feet tall, right? The ball cap. Right. And roll. And, and you don't bend. You roll the brim. If you're, if you're a real hot rod Gaylord Perry pitcher, you, you roll that brim. And same thing with, you know, guys, the old Air Force caps. They had a different kind of crown on there. The Marine Corps had the... That you know, high peaked. Anyway, crazy. I'm into observing. Uh, well, I find, I know exactly what you're talking about with the crown because that was a big thing in Little League. I mean, you wouldn't like Babe Ruth, the old schools, how it is now. But they're even smaller now, where it goes straight to oh. your head. But what oh, bothers yeah. me about which is horrible. It doesn't. It's not. It's not aesthetically very flattering. No, but the other thing is, in the old days, they were not adjustable. You got your own size, and they yep. really fit well. You had to fight. Yeah, you had to know your hats and get the size because it was wool all the way around. You still the, the pro teams are still that. I mean, you still buy them as right, right. sized, but the adjustable. This is denim, the one I got on. They, right. There was a great store on Melrose that had stocks of these blank denim classic trucker caps. They come and go every few years. Even still, I've tried with my merch people. I said, you know. I really want to get the classic, I don't know how many inches, I mean, we measured at one point what the height of the crown should be, uh, you know, for the label to be sticked to whatever, you know, patch you're putting on the front. Another one I've got is a Union 76, big old Union 76 badge. It was the last gas station job I had uh, right after I'd quit going to, you know, college at Ohio State and right before in the months ensuing before I left and came to California. But... Uh, I was Union 76. My dad owned a Texaco for a time, so we'd, uh, as a kid, you know, growing up with, with that. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. 
This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Wark, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Okay, but I'm going to switch to another thing before we go forward. Uh One of the other things you said earlier was being cynical. As they say in class, amplify that. Well, I, I remember I had a great, I had, what I was, I, I mentioned, I touched on a second ago. When I went to LA City College, I was fascinated because I had this uh, professor, Omero was his name, and I realized halfway through, it was a Western Civ class, that the book on Egyptology we were using, he had authored at the University of Chicago. I thought, whoa. This guy, because he could teach at L.A. City, I think it was five years, and they could pick up another a state of California at the time. This is in the early 80s. They could pick up a full retirement, a second full retirement. And so I had that, and I had a professor of, uh, from USC, uh, an English lit professor uh, or creative writing professor who had been a publisher and, again, was retired out of USC, uh, as a full PhD, and was picking up a second retirement, right? And so they, you know, at close range, you know, and with 20 kids in the, in the class. I was, and they said to me, the one said, well, you know, this philosophy professor I had, it was also a full professor from USC that was doing double duty. Um, he said, you know, the difference in a skeptic and a cynic is that a cynic has been a true believer that's become disillusioned. Right, I, th- right. I always held that. I, I understood as soon as I said, "Yeah, that's that's one of the, yeah, you know." I, and so, when I said cynical, I was watching the older part of that generation of boomers. You still probably believed. See, I'm the kid sitting there watching you and the older parts of the boomers. Right, I'm the tail end, the last years of the boomers watching it go to shit, right? Watching the summer of love become ultimate, you know, by 69. Well, I, you know, 
I understand your point. It's well taken. And there are certainly people older than me. The line of demarcation that's so important to me was I was fully conscious when the Beatles hit. But I always, I always use the analogy. I have a beach analogy. Okay. Where the wave comes in, the wave goes out. And there are certain people from that era who are still on the beach. They don't go back out. So, you know, in the fifties wave came in, we got Maynard G Krebs, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Wave went out. People like Allen Ginsberg, whatever, they were left on the beach. For those of us who lived, had the sixties values. Okay. And then Reagan legitimized greed. It's like our values don't square with everybody else. It's like the same thing, you know, even in music, you know, the first thing people want to know is how do they get paid and how do they extend it? Not that the people in the old days weren't interested in getting paid. It just wasn't the first question. So I believe, you know, it's hard for me. This is going to be controversial. You know, even in the Joni Mitchell album, uh, blue California, she says she's going to kiss a sunset pig. Okay. Pig is a cop subsequent to nine 11, the firemen and when the, and the policemen, right. they're venerated. Whereas in the sixties, you have to beware. And it's funny because a, a cop has never done anything good for me. Cop has done a lot of bad shit for me, but never anything good. Really? That's fascinating. I mean, I, and I have, I've had, look, I've had experiences with cops that are not great, but I didn't, what, what, what I was going to say was that I, I, felt like i guess the disillusionment by the early 70s right when vietnam finally well, but i have to tell you we all felt that yeah well that's what i, I understand mean. the concept of being ripped off because they talk yeah. about that a lot with generation x you yeah. got to do it and we're in the trails and we're picking up the uh sure. the shit from the elephant in the right. circus and you, but you're it was, one of the it was very you, very strange to have ken state in may yeah. and then Everything switched. It was back to the land and all the protests. They ended after that. It was very weird. Well, what, what Kent State was uh, uh, May 4th, 1970. 70, yeah. So, but by, I remember I was sitting in, I was a junior year because I had to go down and I had to go down and take the physical for the draft and everything, even though they had stopped it, right? The active draft by the time I, you know, got out right. when I turned 18. Uh, in, in late 74, I still had to get on that bus and drive down there, you know, ride a bus full of dudes down with an army sergeant hollering at you and get in line. That's when I got up there and went, now, get up there, next one, yoke him. And he's calling it out, and I'm standing in my underwear, and he's measuring my hands. He's like, five foot, 11, and three quarter inches. I said, you can't just give me the other quarter inch. He's like, get on out of line. <laughs> Well, the great thing is, you remember the movie Stripes with oh. Warren Oates as Sergeant Holka. And what I loved about it was, you know, they're sitting there and go, don't you think he's taking it a little too seriously? And that irreverence really is the 60s. That's what I oh. love. Yeah. And by the 70s, I mean, they were letting guys, it was, it was, there was cynicism even in the military. You know, it was like, what would the hell was that 10 years and why? You know what I mean? If you talk to guys, and I know you have, that have that came out of it, they're like, "What a waste!" You know, and how many young lives? How many young? I used to look 
in Columbus, there was a little newspaper, a local thing called the Linden News at the height of that war. And I remember the pictures of those kids, some of them with acne, acne still, their photo from boot camp, right, with their dress uniform, and it would run, and they they weren't coming back. They would run them every week, the kids that were gone. And I really sad when I think back at those faces, those young kids. You know, it's I like remember the being of in high graffiti. school. Remember being in high school, and over the intercom for the first time, they announced to all the school that a student, you know, a previous student had died in Vietnam. Yeah. Yeah. Very sobering. And it's a, uh, an experience that like you've said, man, I watched you write. I mean, we're, we're very, 911 to now is not the same because it's still an all volunteer force. It's not, there's no Okay. Craft. But wait, wait, growing up, forgetting that Vietnam, yeah. you know, bad war, et cetera, et cetera. But you're growing up and you say, Shit, I can't see ever fighting for my country. And, I I, I and now I can see fighting against people who want to end democracy, of which there's a good number in America. I hear from them every day. Yeah, well, I mean, I, there's an argument to be made. I was a few years ago, uh, Piers Morgan's show on CNN. I did a thing about, and we, he wanted to interview me and talk about the Second Amendment. And I said, look, it's not about hunting. It's not about, uh, you know, sporting rifle. There's a reason, I believe, that it was written in there that way, and it was to prevent tyranny. And it was to rise up against the tyranny of a government, the tyranny of someone taking over the government, you know, the military, you know, performing a coup, whatever. Uh, so I didn't, I, I was, I guess I was hopeful, uh, and hopefully I was more of a skeptic than a cynic because a cynic, it's hard to, it's hard to go on, you know, cynicism. It's hard to kind of overcome it. Uh, but I, I, I remained skeptical and remain skeptical, you know, of, of a lot of people power, right? Power and those who get it and the wrong people getting it, and who knows, you know, it's a coin toss. Well, it's skeptical, you know, you talk about that. My father, you know, you'd hear things, what's the real story here? It's like when you see somebody driving down the street in a Bentley, and they don't have a job. And, <laughs> well, they either have a rich father or something, especially in L.A., when someone, you can't accept it at face value, when it's incredible, you go, well, wait a second, there's a real story here, part of being a skeptic. And a lot of them are leased in L.A., <laughs> <laughs> Just remember they're yeah, women. <laughs> as I say, there there are a lot of people living that way, but there's all kinds of things. It's like uh, you know, HBO Max has now been turned into Max. Max. And I, that makes no sense to me. None. And then Except really, I don't know who, I, I can't you know, remember who owns it, but they Well, you know, it's Warner Discovery it. and it's run by this guy Zoslav. And I was listening to this guy, Scott Galloway, big business guy. He says no brand person, no branding person in the world would say to change it. This no, from guy, HBO? Yeah. That's a Tiffany guy, brand. This guy changed it because if he wins, oh. he wants all the credit. And then oh, I was okay. listening to this podcast with this economist from Columbia talking about what he said to the White House, et cetera, and they won't listen. It's a dick thing. It's like, I guess I, I, I was brought up, my parents always telling me, you're not the guy. There's always somebody who knows better, who knows more. Yeah. Find them, but you're not the guy. 
And yeah. then you find don't, a, a don't lot think of you're the, the people- smartest guy in the room. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I I go in. I think. Look, I'm 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 pretty good. I'm quick. I'm I'm quick. I'm not fast, but I'm pretty quick. And, uh, but I want to have smarter people than me, you know, informing me. That's what I hope always. That somebody smarter yes, than me but, in the room. You know, as one gets older and time starts to run out of the hourglass, it's very weird because okay, when you go back, when you're still in school. There's a big organization. They're into what you're doing. Are you cutting class? Are you getting good grades? Whatever. Then you graduate. They don't give a fuck. Do whatever you want. You know, live in the gutter, whatever. And it's funny that there's that side. So you're ultimately forced to find your own way with no structure. And it's weird because you, you have, you outgrow people. Primarily because not that they're stupid, but the choices they made, they don't yeah. want to continue to go down the path. And it's very weird because then you're hanging with them. It's not as satisfying as it used to be. And you have to find new people. Yeah. Well, I've over the years been asked, well, how do I, how do I do this or that? And, you know, musicians that are talented, maybe. And, and, and I go, well, yeah, I said, well, first of all, you got to get out of where you are. You know, it's like you're in you're you're in indianapolis or you're in des moines you're in omaha okay cool but you gotta i go to new york go to la or at least nashville so you can compete you know and put it in front of people right and it and it surprises me especially there's a point of age you know you've you've written about this i've read where you where there are those that do and those that don't and those that don't, you could tell over and over again. Are you, when you're beach analogy, are you saying you're one of those th- one of those persons left on the beach? You feel beached, right? Yeah, and you didn't go back out with the current or the wave, right? Yeah, and I probably went out with the wave, and and maybe that's what <laughs> you know. It's like because I understand the analogy, I get it. Uh, okay, okay. Let's just say you bring up. You know, you go on tour, a lot of places you tour are not the top line of the metropolis. Right. If you're just by being there, the brief period of time, is it just another gig or do you learn something? You learn something. gain insight. You learn something every night, everywhere you go, I think. I mean, I'm, I'm just curious enough that I look for what there is. I'm fascinated with people and places. I, I, the thing I never had to study, and I probably would have made it, I was going to major in philosophy, but as I look back in, in history, history and geography, I never had to open a book. It seemed like it just was in me from some, some previous lifetime. I knew the globe, and that was what I was saying when I would cut class. I would, you know, actually cut classes I could get away with it and sit in the library and read because my dad, God bless him, he tried to I was raised uh, very devoutly in Church of Christ which they founded Pepperdine University out here um, but the Church of Christ is a non-denominational uh, you know uh, Christian church and in Columbus the fascinating thing for me again in retrospect was that it was this major university hub right? 
So we had this influx of guys that were teaching my Sunday school classes that were doing, I, I, I know it now because I remember doing their PhDs, one of them in, in, in high-level mathematics at Ohio State. Uh, another one, we had a, a, uh, a friend of our family became very close to my dad because they both shared a love for cars. And he loved, he had a little old Porsche C, the C model looked like the bathtub, you know, upside down. Because he was finishing his residency there in anesthesiology. So I got exposed, you know, this cross-pollinization of culture. My dad was a 10-year career Army sergeant until I came up and was going to stay, do the 20, and, you know. And because of me, he used to look at me and go, you know, boy. <laughs> He'd go, he, he lamented it till the end of his life almost. He said, I'd have been I'd have been retired by now if I'd have stayed in, but you know, because he couldn't. He was last posted in in Korea, post the truce, and people don't realize the Korean War. Remember Korean conflict? John Prine, "Hello" in there is one of the great songs that that right. deals with that. You know, our, the couple, the old man on the bench, and "Hello" in there. And the Korean War, we don't know what for. You know, that lyric was so poignant and great. Anyway, it was post the war, the act of war. And it's still to this day, I guess, just a truce. You know, that's why it's such a, you know. Well, you know, I read, just to, you know, put this in, you, know, you hear about how is it going to end between Ukraine and Russia. And they say it might be like Korea in that there was never a treaty. Is it true? No. They just kind of decided to stop fighting. Stop. And it just became a truce. That's why that DMZ right. is real. It's like right. It's like they're looking at each other still with loaded guns. So anyway, he was there and couldn't take us. He left. My mom was uh, just pregnant with me, and he spent the time. At, and he didn't meet me till I was nine months old. And uh, that it was an interesting dynamic between the two. But he looked. He said, "You know, I'd have been retired." But I said, "You'd have been in Vietnam." <laughs> he said, "Well." You know, maybe, but he ran a motor pool and he ran tank transporters, which, you know, but those old sergeants did end up over there. And, and they ended up, I said, you know, I, the first thing I ever wrote, funny enough, because uh, I was watching all the news real footage. I was eight years old and I had my first real guitar. Well, he had one he brought home. There's a shot of me in my box set that it's a K F hole. Remember the old F-hole guitars? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A K that he he couldn't play. He brought more instruments home and never could play a lick. He brought one from Westinghouse when he worked out there after he lost his gas station. Yeah, that's another whole topic. that you know, They give these guys gas stations that are great mechanics that have no business acumen whatsoever. And the oil companies know that, by the way. I've read an analysis of that. They knew because they owned the real estate. So they would just flip every three or four years another give another mechanic, you know, the station, let him try and run it. And, but he brought a bass, he brought a bullhorn Dan Electrode bass home. He said, well, I bought this from this guy out at the plant. He said, he's a young guy, he just needed money. <laughs> he said, I figured you could play an electric guitar. I said, well, Dad, that's not a guitar. <laughs> I don't know how to play a bass. He said, bass. And when I thought about, we and my, it was black. It's a classic. It's probably worth multiple thousands of dollars now. I think about that bullhorn Dan Electro bass. And we painted it baby blue for some reason. We spray painted My brother and I, you know, neither, you know, I fooled around with it, but I couldn't play. 
But I had a real acoustic guitar. He had this K that I had when I was about two years old, three. There are photos of me with it just bellering and hold, trying to hold it. My granny holding the top and the headstock. And I, I tripped and fell and crushed that. So then I had a couple of toy things, that, you know, between then and, and at eight years old. And this goes to who he was and my parents. Uh, Soul of the Earth people that worked really hard. Um, and he had a bit of Walter Mitty in him. He was always dreaming. And this was back to what I was talking about with the people that he knew, the cross-pollinization of culture, uh, because they knew he was a great mechanic and they, some of these guys liked cars and, and they had that in common, but nothing else with him. And uh, even him trying to learn to golf was hilarious. I, I caddied for him till the last time. I was laughing, so I collapsed onto the course. And, and um, anyway, um, but I wrote this song on that guitar because the newsreels were coming at dinner. You'd hear, you know, the Marines have gone into landed at Da Nang. Remember they did they did a they did a a landing craft landing. If you remember, it was like a big staged, you know, bit, uh, sort of a la World War II. And that must have prompted me because I was starting to see, you know, that first couple of years of the active war, you know, which would have been what, eight? I was 64, eight years old. But 64 was really, before that it was just advisors. Yeah, yeah, no, they this was when 64. they went in. I mean, one of the Marines, actually, 65. But anyway, I wrote this song called How Far Is Heaven? And... My parents didn't quit. They didn't know. It was a hillbilly thing. It was half finished. I've said, talked about it over the years, a few times in interviews. But it went, uh, and it started with this hillbilly waltz. It's about all I could play, two couple chords. I don't play much more than that now. But I, I was getting through. My daddy got killed over in Vietnam. Then there's just a few things that I don't understand. Boom, 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 how far is heaven? When can I go? I love my daddy. Lord, I miss him. So so anyway, they heard me doing something. And they had me, I came downstairs and said, what are you playing? And so I played it for him. My dad was flabbergasted and almost offended. He said, well, what in the world is he writing like I'm dead? <laughs> and my mother, <laughs> he didn't breathe. <laughs> like, he's you know, poetic license. They didn't quite grasp. He didn't grasp. It. It's like, does he want me dead? You think he'd look at my mom? It's like, he was hilarious, actually, and a tough dude, tough guy, but a soft heart. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Okay, okay, a couple of things. So with your father, this was really, you're a little young, as you said, but anti-Vietnam and pro-Vietnam was... I don't want to equate it with abortion because they're two different things. Yeah. But the vociferousness that people held their positions. Oh, was yeah. your father always pro-Vietnam or did he ever start to crumble? I think he, well, no, I think by the end, he, like a lot of ex-GIs, were like watching that from the distance and going, I don't know what in the hell they're, you know. The, yeah, he became disillusioned. Um, but again... Uh, there was, it's not as clear as black and white. If your memory, if you really analyze the moments, Bob, there was, especially where we were, you know, the Ohio Valley, you moved out into, uh, greater Appalachia, right? You're out there in that region. And it's, I mean, I came from, he was in a union, he was a shop steward in a union. But he became disillusioned because, you know, the power of unions becomes corrupt. They become corrupt, right? Um, whether it's Hoffa or whatever. I forget what, what he he was a shop steward. And one day he came home with his eye cut open because a guy on the line, because there was a guy that kept showing up drunk, right, to work at a plant, big factory, you know. And right. They, and they're all on the line. And this guy was going to get somebody killed. He said, this guy's drunk. And... And not showing up. And it was his job to go defend him to the teeth, right? You know, and say he can be, you know, he's absent. No, he, you know, he's sick. He was sick. He was sick. And finally he said, and this is the old army sergeant. I can't do that anymore. 
You know, I can't cover for this clown. Do you know what I mean? The union was saying, hey, dude, you're covering for him. You're the shop steward, you're covering. And he said, I'm not doing it. And the guy down the line let a a flywheel part of a refrigerator, like it was, an, it was a Westinghouse plant, right? They built refrigerators to let that go down the line, the conveyor, but and it bounced, ricocheted, and uh, caught the guy next to him's hand and cut him and then hit my dad in the eye, you know, came up and cut him. And it could have killed either of them, you know, it could have killed him. That was the warning shot, right, from, you know, the union. It's like, you know, the, the, so I saw that at close range. I watched him come home with stitches in that eye. And I, we're, and I was like, what happened? And he said, well, this guy didn't like that I'd, I'm fed up. I'm not covering. You know, it's the Warren Oates moment. Remember the scene in the barracks where the guy go, jumps up and goes, it's his name, and they introduce themselves. And he says, I'm Francis. So any of you guys, he said, the pejorative, any right. of you mother, call me Francis, I'll kill you. He goes, any of you touch my shit, I'll kill you. Any, he goes through a laundry list of anybody right. does this and that, I'll kill you. And Warren Oates is sitting there chewing on the cigar, and he says, sit down and stow it, Francis. You're the top <laughs> thing on the list, don't call me Francis. Goes, sit down right, and right. stow it, Francis, which is... That's those guys, right, that run the army. They run the military. You know, anybody that's smart that's been the officers will tell you the thing that'll get you saved, listen to your NCOs, right? Let the old sergeant lead. And that's who he was. You know, he had half a career in and didn't want to get out, but he couldn't take us. His heart wouldn't let him go back. And his captain, I remember he said, well, my captain told me just go home it's been a few months. He said, "Reenlist. I'll give you your full stripes back and put a stripe on it and come back to me." And he never did, but he never quit. And it wasn't about, you know, the rah-rah end of it. It was about the function of the hierarchy of the military. I think you know what I mean. The the, the organization. You know, it made sense to him. Does that mean you know? And and, and oh, completely. Great great mechanical aptitude. So. Order probably made sense to him in that way. I was fascinated with it. I would sit there. I could tell you the crazy service in terms of rank and insignia is the Navy. The Navy's, and I have a whole theory about the Navy that, that the most uh, suspect uh, officer corps might be the Navy because I, I my theory is, and this is my own barnyard theory is, you know, from teenage years on, was that their their loyalty didn't necessarily it can be compromised a little bit. Uh, if there was ever a real coup in the United States, I think it might come from naval intelligence rather than any other branch because they're so removed when you think about their duty post from the country, especially in peacetime. Right, they're on the high seas. They're all over the world. So there's a disconnect, maybe, possibly. Anyway, whatever. That's a, that's a whole, like I said. No, no, okay. Right? But tell me about him owning the Texaco station. Well, he had that. He was great. And then his younger brother, um, he was one of three boys. He had an older brother, and he was in the middle, and, and he had this younger brother. And the two of them, he owned it, and and this brother. And, and it just he, managing the money of it and all that stuff and trying to make it go. And that's back in the day when there were four corners, there were four stations. Like there was a Sinclair, a Chevron. And my mom's uh, cousins, who had come out of Kentucky, uh, the Christian brothers, they, he owned a Sinclair, I think. Then one night, I remember all the stories about it. He walked out and flicked a cigarette 
or a cigar butt as the tanker was loading, you know, fuel into the station. And it went, it skipped across the lot and exploded. <laughs> His whole station burned to the ground. That's the classic move. My dad didn't do anything that dumb because, again, he was art, Army Sergeant kind of smart and, and seasoned. And he was like, what are you? What the hell are you thinking? They flick a cigarette, a cigar butt across the lot when that guy's out. The fumes are gonna, and that's what happened. The fumes caught just one spark, and it was like the whole corner went up. And they're lucky that the fork, because I, I don't know, and 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 because uh, you were raised in Connecticut, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I remember the four gas stations. Well, they're on every first and foremost the four corners. Yeah, right? now it's like hard. You have to think about buying gas. Oh, yeah. Whereas the never mind the price wars and the glasses and all oh. that other shit. People have and, no idea. And, about. and Sunoco, he had a Texaco, and he had it for about three and a half years. He had a red pickup truck with that big star on the side, and it was fascinating. We got our first real dog from there. A guy didn't want it. Gave us his. He had a boxer that he ended up. Um, in that gas station, uh, he had him there for a week or two, and he brought him home, Duke, and that, that boxer that we ended up inheriting from from the gas station, and uh, uh, you know he he just it, it ended up financially failing. I was too young to know the machinations of it, you know, but he just couldn't make the business side of it go and make sense. And they were being charged rent by Texaco, and sometimes the you know it was set up on the margins. When I look, you know, I know now. That and they expected a certain amount of failure, and they would just replace you with the next guy. They didn't. Texaco didn't lose the corner, you know. They owned it, and you were paying. You know, there's this, there's the same scam now in lawn haul truck drivers Mm -hmm. that they basically lease you the car to own, and the guys can't keep the payments, and they just, you know, they charge you a lot to get in, and they just pass it on to the next guy. Next guy, and it's just a shame. But so that was that world, and then he went on, like I said, in in. And always attempted to better himself uh, and, uh, you know, was always looking to, like, he went to night school to try and, you know, uh, and just wasn't, hadn't been prepared for that, you know, because he, he ended up dropping out of high school. He was 16 when he enlisted. He was underage when he went in the Army. It was post-war, the, the Treatsy uh, forces, because Colonel David Hackworth, there was a great book called About Face. He was a full bird colonel highly decorated in Vietnam and he went on um, uh, what was the, you know the Sunday morning show uh, meet the press from Vietnam and railed against the conduct of the military and the polit- you know the politicians running the war in I don't know what I think 1970 or 71 whatever and saying this is getting good kids killed for no reason and he immediately was you know uh, I don't know if he quit the military at that point, but he was dumped. But uh, uh, I don't know why I was talking about Hackhorse's book, but about face. Um, and uh, uh, to, you know, he was trying, attempting to, oh, I know what it was. He went in the Army underage, like Hackhorse had done. Post-World War II, he jumped in as a way out, you know. My granddad had been a railroader, right, you know, and was with Penn Central at that point. Uh, my great grandfather had been a cabinet maker for the railroad. Came out of, he was a baby and came out of the Shenandoah Valley in a Conestoga wagon across the Ohio, you know, in, in the Ohio Valley, and that's where they landed in Southern Ohio. 
across from Kentucky, and then my mom's side of the family is steeped in 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 uh, southeasternmost Kentucky and deep western Virginia. You know, it goes back we don't know how many generations. I never really explored enough of it uh, on that side. The Tibbs family, Ratliffs, Gillums, it's old mountain names. And uh, but so he had this railroad background, but he wanted to escape it. And uh, I always, I, th- I think I re- got a bit of his optimism. You know, he, you know, that he was always hoping for a better life. You know, and uh, uh, not always successful at trying to attempt the next move. You know, and ironically, he ended up living the last thirty years of his life in Kentucky and down in Louisville, actually. Uh, but he became uh, a state, uh, he worked for the state of Ohio at one point. He became a construction inspector for the city and was really good at that. He had great, you know, mechanical aptitude and then uh, ended up working for the state of Kentucky his last, you know, uh, I don't know, 15 years of his working life and, and retired from there. But uh, uh, I think back, he and I were just so different as as you know, personalities. My brother and he were more in, in, in common with each other, I think, and and locked horns a lot more than me. And I would look at my you know, my younger brother, the, you're the rebel without the without a cause, Bob, the middle kid, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We'll get you, to that eventually. But, you know, we've talked about this before, but let's go back here where, yes, you ba- basically grew up in Ohio, but it's like Kentucky it's the epicenter of the opioid culture and bad things. So for those of us who did not grow up there, you know, we hear about coal miner's daughter. We hear about the holler, you know, what exactly, what was it like in your father's era? What was it like for you? What is it like now? Well, their era, they were, you know, and my mother, uh, who I, I regret for her that she didn't go on to college cause she was an exceptional student and, and uh, great with English grammar, she would correct us, you know, uh, and a stickler for it. And my granny, who barely, you know, maybe had an, I don't know, an eighth grade, the classic eighth grade education, you know, the mountain people. One of the ironic moments for me was sitting in that holler. It was dirt road. It was, it was basically hollers. <laughs> uh, Rory Kennedy, uh, uh She's one of Bobby's daughters, all right, Bobby Kennedy Jr., Bobby Kennedy's daughters, is a documentary filmmaker, and she did a, a piece a few years ago. It was a great piece called American Hollow, and I only took exception with her calling it a hollow instead of a, because in the New England area where you're, <laughs> right. you would call it a hollow, right, Sleepy Hollow, or, well, that's what they are. It's a holler, and it usually was a creek bed coming off the mountain top, you know, in southeast Kentucky in that case, or in West Virginia or wherever. Um, in the mountainous areas, and uh, this—it was a single car wide dirt road up that holler to get to the top. The you know from down at the bottom, and you the, a creek would run alongside of it out of there. So I was, and that was only—it was ninety miles, you know, to Kentucky. From so we would go home. They called it going home. That was what I, my mother would. We're going to go home this weekend, and would take. I used to say we're taillight babies because you would see a line on Route 23 out of Columbus. You would get back on, on to Route 23 uh, and be headed south to Portsmouth, Ohio, and go over to Ironton and cross into Ashland. 
which is where the Judds are from. And, uh, and then Ricky Skaggs is another few miles in Louisa down that road, that same highway. Loretta Lynn, Crystal Gale, or another county down. Uh, I'm on a sign that get, you get to Pike County, and that's where I was born. Pike, well, Patty Loveless is a string of us that came off that highway in that one section of Kentucky, that state. That when I, And then if you go just across from Pike County where it borders, it borders Virginia. And you go across toward Grundy and up and through there is Clinch Mountain, which is where Ralph and Carter Stanley came out of and the Carter family, right? A.P. Carter. The beginning of modern country music, really, right? They go down and do the Bristol Sessions. Two acts came out of the Bristol Sessions. Jimmy Rogers, right, and which uh, was it? Ralph Peer that went down with the recording. I can't remember who went down and did the Bristol sessions. Anyway, and Jimmy Rogers, and the Carter family, and those are the two that blew up and made country music in 1927 commercial. And so I'm born there, right? And the escape route across the river lands me you know up there in columbus and so my perspective was and i would get so car sick when we'd drive down through there you'd follow culture it was a two-lane road two-lane highway it was a, it was a u.s route route 23 and uh to this day it's widened and stuff but there's no interstate running over there they were supposed to put a new 66 out of dc it's never been finished and it was going to go through there but um and one of the one of the people that blocked, uh, you know, a U.S. road going down through there was, I believe, uh, Johnson post Lincoln, uh, and uh, it was weird. That's a weird presidency in and of itself, and his uh, his you know kind of hostility towards the South, you know, at that point, because you know, he's from Tennessee. Uh, the former vice president, right? I mean, Johnson, who became the president, was and and uh, was impeached. You know, prior to Trump, the only I think sitting president impeached. Um, anyway, that culture was there up and down that highway, and I used to say that on Friday nights, taillight babies, you'd see all these license plates from Michigan and Ohio headed south. They were going home from Detroit tons of these cars because they could make it you know at that point it was it was mostly and you could do interstate coming down to columbia then you could jump on that that uh u.s route and take it across into kentucky but you could be down there from columbus and you'd be at the river an hour and a half and then you'd start the hard part of it and there'd be another you know three hours to get you know to the house and the holler i wrote about it read right in route 23 you know about the grandparents staying up to see those grandbabies you know they would bring us in and uh and then i would spend time down there with them in the summers and you just stay there my you know, mother would leave me and you know i'd be with them and they were old mountain people they were he, my granddad was born in 1901 and it's you know it's you know kind of the sergeant york you know version of that stuff you know but i learned to shoot a shotgun with him i you know it's all that was you know part and parcel of what i was living and uh uh, they'd had a, a tougher road to hoe, you know, than me. I was lucky, you know, they, they escaped me, you know, so I got to see the world and then have it come into the living room in color at some point, you know, and, and have hope. Okay, so at this late date, what is it that people 
in the blue areas in the metropolis don't get about people from that era area well that they're number one i think that and you talk about a holler that they're suspicious one of the things that stayed with me from gladwell's book outliers was his discussion about not being able to keep a circuit judge as late as the 80s remember in southeast kentucky in harlan he was talking about harlan county specifically but if you remember that part of the book, he said they were going in, people would walk in with a gun into court and threaten the judge. And they knew he meant it. I had a great oral surgeon out here that had done his, his, uh, his. I think this is Hillbilly Elegy you're referring to, right? No, no, no. It's uh, Gladwell's book, uh, Outliers. He talks about Harlan County, Kentucky, and how the feuding culture, it crops up around the world in places that are not hospitable to agrarian culture, that are herd cultures. Like, the, if you remember the, the highlands of Scotland, uh, the right. Mediterranean Crescent, right? The, the Medi- where they don't operate as a collective force. And it, they had to take any, uh, any suspicious person, a stranger shows up, and if he bumps into you in a bar, you can't let it go. Because he may be testing you like a perimeter, you know, probe to see if he can come that if you're a weakling and he can come back that night and steal your herd of goats, steal your cattle. Because you can do that overnight. You can't take a thousand acres of wheat. You can't move that overnight. It takes a collective effort, right, to harvest it, put it on a truck, put it on, you know, whatever, and take it to market. But with herds, and it moved out across the country when you think about it, you know, with the last bastion being the cattle country in the West, right? Where they fought the farmers coming in and putting up fences, et cetera. And they even got down to killing with regulators, you know, and things like that. So that culture's there. And what I would say is just know that they're suspect of everybody that doesn't, you know, come from their local area. Any outsider that shows up, they're watching you. I I was going to say, I had this, 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 uh, oral surgeon out here who found out me who you know, got acquainted with me a little bit and he went wait a minute you're from Kentucky he said, I went to the University of Kentucky he's wearing this and nowhere you've ever heard of it either. I went to the University of Kentucky and did my they had a program there where you did uh, he had gotten his degree in dentistry and went back there to specialize in oral surgery and while you're doing it they became an MD became a medical doctor along with you know getting his, his uh, specialty in oral surgery he said, but part of the deal was, I said, well, I'm from, you've probably never been where I'm born, Pikeville, Kentucky, way down, it's the you know, last corner of the state. And he said, are you kidding? He said, our professor, the head of the department at University of Kentucky, had, had dental offices in Pike County and Floyd County, which is where I lived. He said, and we had to, part of the deal was, we had to go work those on the weekends. For him, he said, "Let me tell you something. I learned a lot." He said, "There was a, a guy had a dog near him. He was living. And he had a little house that was owned by the by whoever this this doctor was at University of Kentucky." And he said, "I was asleep the first couple of nights, and there was a hound dog, like a you know, I was I don't, wasn't even a, it was a hunting dog, but he was. They were in this pen on an adjacent lot." And they were barking all night. And he said, I had to get sleep. He said, so I went over and just lifted the thing. I, they weren't going to stop. 
They're hound dogs, you know, just in there bellering and hollering. He said, I, I just lifted the latch and kind of let them go. <laughs> he said, about two days later, he said, I got a knock on my door in that little house, shotgun house. He said, he said, and the guy came up uh, and he said, uh, I said, hey, mister. He said, it was just two guys. He said, they were scary looking, haunted, gaunt faced, you know coal miner looking guys and they're hunting caps and staring at me. He said, it's a dark dog got out. <laughs> he said, oh, really? He said, yeah, yeah. He said, we got him back. He said, but uh, you wouldn't know anything about that, would you? Let them go. <laughs> getting out. And he said, I was like, he said, I literally, but he talked about the culture. He told me, he said, you know, they would pay in cash. And somebody said, I knew they couldn't afford any of it. And they would come in and have wads of cash to give him to fix their kid's tooth. Or fix, and he said it was just, it was heartbreaking at times, he said. And what was, you know, part of that experience. And, and, but he said they looked at him and he said, you know, you don't let a man dog loose. And he said, I took it. He said, I got the warning. He said, they were both standing. He said, they were holding shotguns because they were hunters, you know, in hunter caps. And he said, staring at him. He said, he said, because so his experience there, it was interesting. You know, he and I uh, <laughs> talked about it many times over the years. He, it, so that culture, it's a lost part of America, you know, in a way. Uh, it's, 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 and it's been forgotten a lot. You know, they've been left, you know, like you said, the opioid crisis that's gone on down there and throughout that area of the region, you know. Um, and, and, you know, Hillbilly Elegy, he touches on all that, you know, the aspects of it. You get out, and, and Gladwell discusses that aspect about, in, in Outliers, about at the University of Michigan, they did a double-blind study of kids that were removed from the South or just recently moved from the South, but even those that were two and three generations removed. And I believe they found in the 90s when they were unlocking the DNA code, right? They finally, pre, prior to 23andMe and all this stuff, they discovered maybe a gene why people think they've had past lives, you know, that you're carrying a sense memory gene. Have you read about the, the sense memory no, gene? No, I haven't. It's, you're carrying memories from all the rel your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-great, as long as they lived through experiences long enough to, to uh, you know, convey those thoughts and experiences through their DNA by procreating forward, right? So that if you had a great-great-grandfather that fought in something, you have this sense memory, or you have apprehensions about height, or you have, you know, do you know what I mean? And yeah. they were talking, Gladwell discusses that these kids that were even a generation or two generations removed from the South still behaved with the umbrage of Southerners at the University of Michigan when they were presented with a circumstance that, that felt insulting to them, how they would react versus a kid from New York or, you know, a kid from the Northeast who didn't react the same way, didn't take, you know, as much umbrage with something, you know, the, you know, the challenge of it. And I do believe that, that it has to do with, with being a lost element. And I used to tell people, I said, look, Kentucky is a mountain state. There's parts of it that are, that are, Dixified, you know, the central and, and western part, but eastern and southeastern Kentucky, easternmost Kentucky, it's mountain culture. Billy Bob Thornton and I have talked about that because he's from Arkansas, which is a mountain state again. 
and it's different. The dialects are different. It's not southern. It's not southern uh, colloquialism. The same. It's not, you know, Dixieland kind of you know stuff. It it's and it was a border state for that reason, I think, and that's why West Virginia broke away from Virginia, that section of the state. You know, within you know within those states, there was this conflict going on. The Hatfields and McCoys feuded in that county. Historically, that's where it happened, Pike County, Kentucky. And they believed that it was an outgrowth of the Civil War. I think the McCoys sided with the Union, and the Hatfields were, were sympathizers to the Confederacy, and they had sons that were in the Southern Army. And one of them came back and was hiding in a cave, and the McCoys allegedly gave him up to the Union troops that were there in Pikeville, and they went up and killed him. And they believed that's where the feud began with the Hatfields and McCoys. And it went on. You know, that went on, you know, for about 45 years. A, a sheriff finally arrested one of each part of each family, put them on a barge because they couldn't keep them. They would go break them out of the jail, you know, literally. And he put them on a, a logging barge at that time before the coal barges and sent them upriver to Ashland and over to Louisville. And they were held there and stood trial. And that tamped it down. And they both went to prison. And, and that stopped the feud, as, you know, what historically I've, I've read. Anyway, that culture is different than the Deep South. It's, it's the isolationists. You know, they really are, it's like the Scottish Highland culture, you know, the Scots. They're not, you know, they weren't like those from England, you know, going back as far as, you know, Mary, Queen of Scots, all of it, you know. It's like, so I... I I think that the blue states don't understand that dynamic in of American culture. The you know the outlier culture that's part of that, right? Those that are uh, disenfranchised, no matter what race, you know, the disenfranchised that are part of that, you know. Welcome to Five Hundred Greatest Songs a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. 
the joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Okay, your father was such an organization, company man, structure. You said he liked that. How'd you end up being so entrepreneurial? Me? Yeah. <laughs> Me being entrepreneurial? I don't think I'm, I'm not that much but of an I, it, Two things. It's yeah. in, you're inherently an entrepreneur if you're a musician. Yeah, you are. Making, it's like, yeah, he, you know, he, you don't get a weekly he paycheck. Ne- he would have never done that. He, he looked at me one time. He said, well, I just graduated high school. He said, son, boy, you got to know your station in life. And I thought, I was sad for him. When I looked at him across, you know, I was... I guess I was 18 or 19 at that point, and I'm still living at home and going to school, you know, school at, at Ohio State. And I thought, wow, it kind of broke my heart for him, you know, that he felt there was a point. As much as that Walter Mitty was in him, he didn't fully believe he could really, you know, grab that ring, you know, and that brass ring was not. Was okay, just out of did you always know? That you were going to make it, that you were going to grab the brass ring doing something from well, early I, age? I said fifth grade, right? That the, I, Even earlier, there was a craziness. You know, so I'm just egotistical enough, I guess, enough of a narcissist maybe, that I, that I anyone that gave me encouragement, again, outside family, because they were, and my parents were not, they didn't tamp me down. You know, they didn't criticize, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, I've right. been I've been witness now as an adult to some families. I'm sh- I'm stunned. I'm like, wow. That's why I said earlier they weren't malicious ever. And I look at it now and I think you, where you've got parents that are competing. I don't think what I've read from you that your parents competed with you. They they love not you. not what I think my mother on a very subtle level. But the difference between my family and your family sounds like by today's standards we were abused kids. My father used to hit us all the time. Well, we got spanked. Oh, and you didn't. My dad, he, my mother, my mother would make us go pick our own switch. That's a hillbilly deal. We would have to go pick our own switch, and it wasn't one you should bring back that would break. <laughs> I remember testing the switch out on my bare legs and shorts, going back across the yard because <laughs> she had this. We had this huge hedge that was when we were on <laughs> this house that we had. And we have to pick a switch out of there. That's just brutal, right? You have to go pick the element of your 
of your torture yourself. And uh, so we got switched, but they didn't never got hit in the face, never got hit with you know, you know what I mean. It was I was spanked. You know, it was a little bit more vicious where I grew up. Really, my father was a little out of control. He'd had his father lost a hand in a railroad accident and had been married before. And when he he, he lost died, his hand, he left all whatever money he had to the first family. My father had a hard upbringing, and it wasn't until very you know we were way out of the house where I remember there used to be this chairlift at Aspen Highlands. He was a shitty skier, but he was a terrible athlete. It's one thing he could do. And there was this trail that took a half an hour and it would be difficult to talk to my father. You could listen to him, but it's hard to have a conversation. And he started pontificating about all these things that happened to him growing up. Never told any of those stories until he had made it. Right. Right. Wow. Did you, did you get hit like around the face and all that? I mean, did, oh, well, I mean. The, you know, that great line, I'm going to hit you till you stop crying. Wow. And that was <laughs> well, that was spanking till you stop crying. You know, yeah, that was me. Usually it was the belt. Sometimes yeah, the, belt. the hairbrush. They, you get the hairbrush in the head. My father would slap you in the face, sure. Yeah, we didn't. My father. He, he contained was himself. not a guy. My father was not the type of guy who was beefy and scary that way. Mm-hmm. But man, when he lost it, he was, it was almost like. This guy is losing control. It's like you felt sane. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I mean, well, they believed in corporal punishment. They were, you know, they they spanked. But we, again, I didn't, I, I'm trying to think of my brother. My brother probably came the closest because he threatened my dad. And, uh, and one time I heard him, <laughs> I was in college, my brother was in a bedroom next to me. By that point, we had a, well, you know, a house, you know, in the sub. We'd gotten a one-car garage, but it it had four bedrooms. My sister had a bedroom, brother and I, and my parents. And he came upstairs, and my brother was still in bed. He was supposed to be up and going to, you know, high school, getting. And I remember he was grown. He was he was probably in his senior year, and. I was in bed because I didn't have a class at at, at, at uh, Ohio State. I was, and I heard my dad walk in and go, "Hey, get up!" And my brother turned. Oh no, he opened the door with me first. Is what it was he said? You getting up? And I said, "Yeah, I'm getting up." And opened the door. My brother, my dad got up, even when he didn't. And he, I never knew a day he didn't have another job. He he would leave a job and go right to another job. You know he did. He just had that ethic, you know. He he would find work, and early because the army. He was up even on his days off. He was up at six a.m. with coffee, you know, down there, you know, and so he walked into my door first, and he closed and opened my brother's door. And my brother rolled over in the bed, said, "I heard your mouth." <laughs> now what's the deal? He said that. And all I heard was my dad cross the room in like three strides, and he picked him up by the collar and by the butt of the sheets, grabbed his body, picked him up, and threw him. And that was the barracks. I'm sure that was a barracks moment. Across the room, he hit the wall. He goes, hey, boy, you could you call me a, my mouth again, whatever it was, and then it stormed out and left. It didn't hit him in the face. 
And I got up and I remember I walked in and I went, I leaned on the door, John. I was sitting there looking at him and he's on the floor still with a pile of sheets. And, <laughs> and I said, dude, what were you thinking? <laughs> it's like, what are you thinking? And I and he threatened. I heard threats, like another great euphemism. He said, my brother had the refrigerator door. I mean, you know, this is when we're man-childs, right? You know, I'm like 17. My brother's, you know, 15. We're all standing there. And he's drinking out of the carton, you know, instead of pouring it in a glass, right? Which, which turned my stomach. I didn't do it because I, I don't want to see it done, and I'm not doing it. But he was standing there, and he did something like that, and he left the door just standing open and looked over at my dad, who was sitting at the other end of the kitchen table drinking coffee and reading the newspaper, and he looked up, and he said, the hell you think you're doing? He said, what? He goes, how'd you like to have to drop your pants to eat your next meal? And we both looked at each other <laughs> like, um, how would that happen? <laughs> And he let us. He let that sink in for a minute, and he said, "Cause that's about how far down your throat your teeth are gonna be if you keep this up." When I get done with you. <laughs> that's the army sergeant coming. I mean, and like I said, he he grew up. My granddad, I only, I barely remember. He died young. I mean, it was early fifties. He had a heart attack. My grandmother at forty nine. So my dad's parents. We're both gone. My mom's parents, the, the Kentucky side, my granddad Luke, I knew till I was grown. And he was really a soft-spoken mountain man. You know, he was just this humble coal miner. And I knew about all that from the Mate Juan point of view, right? You know, he was there when the shootings happened, all of it. You know, they back in the 20s and 30s, he was a miner. And when they unionized and, and the Pinkertons came in and killed people, you know. So I saw all of it, you know, I saw, you know, the, the, the plus and minus of the unionists, you know, and, and what happened and how it happened and, and watched. Uh, in any event, my, my dad said, no, my brother came the closest because they would lock horns like that example, you know. I was like, what? He's the middle kid, Bob, you know. You can't help oh, believe yourself. Me, I know. My, my, my older sister used to test my father all the time. I remember, because we all ate dinner together. Uh, oh, yeah. And we it didn't did take mu did, didn't take much to set my father off, and he would reach over and smack you. It was about how much could you tamp it down. Oh. And my sister would get in an One time she got in an argument with him and took his car. What? I just could not fucking believe it. <laughs> it's like, what were you thinking? All hell broke. I was like, No. Yeah. But the only no. thing is, my mother, you know, when Reggie Jackson came to New York, he said, I'm the straw that stirs the drink. My mother socially was the straw that stirs the drink, right. but she was a hard ass. Whereas wow. my father, as crazy as he could be, if he sensed you were really in a bad spot, says, yeah, sounds like you're really in a bad spot. I'm going to send you $20, go out for a good meal, try to figure it out. Yeah. Whereas my mother would say- Go get a job tomorrow, blah, 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 you know, I don't want to hear it. My mom was actually is uh, a tenderhearted person. My dad was actually underneath that facade. You know, uh, 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 he would, he was, you know, the thing that I, I regret that we're forgetting is forgiveness in, in our society and life. Do you know, Bob? Forgiveness is a lost 
thought. Well, okay, there's two types of forgiveness. I think, you know, they hold people to unreasonable standards now. We all make mistakes. If you make the mistake and you apologize, we can't hold it against it forever. Mm. But I must admit, there are people who've done things in my life where I don't forgive them. And they, people say, well, if you give them, you know, forget that third party, you know. Well, if you forgive them, you'll feel better. I don't think so. As far as letting my father off the hook, he came from such a hard background, whatever. Sure. Well, yeah. But, I mean, this one, but, but also, my, my, I think my dad had the, the willingness to, you know, and his guys, you know, my, my wife sometimes was like, look, yeah. Guys fighting and then you get over, like, you know, <laughs> you wrestle around, they hit one another. And then you guys now are friends? It's like, yeah. But that's the oh, male. Oh, listen. <laughs> you know, that's one thing you learn growing up. My mother, you know, people today, they'll call up the school and say they have to stop bullying my kid. In my era, that would be like the curse of death. Yeah. If your parents stood up for you, yeah. these kids would beat the shit out of you. No. So, you know, my mother would never get involved, and she had the right lesson. Unless you stand up to them, right. your well, history. There is, there is that. And, and once you stand up to them, then they get over it. It's just amazing. They move on to the next thing. Well, some of the culture that's going on now, too, the, the whole thing with us you were referring to, that we're being so uh, zealous in, in destroying people for a mistake. Is, I couldn't agree more. It's a bully culture. Absolutely. There's a bully culture to the victim can become the bully. In fact, most of the time, you know, I talked with Billy Bob Thornton and I when he wrote, gave me the script for Sling Blade. I, I said, this character is interesting because he's, he's a bully, and bullies are usually those that are most afraid. And I said, he said, yeah. He said, he, I said, you know, the character that I was playing, and I, I said, he's the one that's the most afraid in the room, and that's why he's, or it's out of his control, and he freaks and starts to, but the bullying is usually born out of oftentimes being having been the bullied, right, the victim. Oh, yeah. Like the last person you want in charge of something, and that's why they do it prisons. They make, you know, trustees out of other inmates, and they, you know, put them in charge of the other, and they're oftentimes the worst, you know, uh, you know, the worst thing that could happen to the other prisoners is another prisoner being elevated, being in charge of them. Anyway, so, but... Well, it's, no, it's the same type of thing, you know, talking about your forgiveness. There are all these people who can't change their mind. What kind of life oh. is that? You know, like in politics, okay, I believed one thing, I now I, know I'm something wrong. Something else. Let's move on. Yeah. But you can't do that. But, it's all a team sport. It's shows, crazy. Uh, to me, that shows a capacity of, of, of intelligence that you're able to evolve, right? And we can all evolve, you know, all of us. And anyway, so, yeah. But, my you know, dad, it's the my same dad thing. Was not, but my mom also tamped that down. She wouldn't stand she said he shook me one time when he had just gotten back, you know, and just kind of knew me. And she was driving in the car, and he was holding me. And I started crying, screeching, like, you know, the 10-month-old or whatever I was. And he kind of just said, hey, shook me. You know? And she took the car across the highway into the medium and back up the other side, yelling at him. And about, he said, all right, okay, don't kill him. <laughs> he said, whatever, I'll never touch the kid. <laughs> it's like, but she 
very early on was our protector, and she wouldn't allow my granddad, who I was touched on a minute ago. My dad had a tough way, you know, like your dad. You know, he 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 got knocked around. I mean, my granddad was a frustrated prize fighter, but he, he had fought in clubs, what they call a club fighter, when he was under right. underage, like at 17, 18, 19. And you had to be 21, and he, they went to his parents. There was a guy, a manager came through and saw him. He had a lot of fights and was evidently had a really vicious right hand. And they tried to get him turned pro, and his parents, the old railroader, my great-granddad, who I knew, actually I knew years beyond my grandfather, because he outlived, he lived into his 90s. Um, Samuel Burt, who had come in the wagon, the covered wagon, in, into the Ohio Territory, you know, come across, he, he wouldn't sign. He said, nope, nope, Lawrence... That was his LR. He went by and said, Lawrence, he's going to work on a railroad. And he said, it, it destroyed him. So he never quit. And he drank, even though you know he was true to my grandmother, but he drank and fist fought. He became a yard boss for the Penn Century and ran the yard, railroad yards. But tough guy. And my, bro, my, my, my dad and my uncles, you know, were... Uh, you know, treated pretty rough, you know, by him. So my dad had a, an empathy for us, but my mom is who guided it. You know, I watched her at the dinner. She, he, she, he never hit one of us in the, you know, like you were saying, the, uh, he never backhanded. He threatened. He threatened. <laughs> I could see he was trying real hard not to, with my brother especially. Um, I, I used to say to him, I said, dude, just say yes, whatever. And then when you get gone and you do what you're going to do, get out, you know, don't be the rebel that has no cause here. You know, you're not going to win, right? Family dynamics. That's funny that you, and then you're the youngest of your family. Was, well, what happens is my older sister would be out of control. Then my younger sister would act like the baby. Well, they know. So how, I'm sitting they there, learn. you know, the key is, just don't get caught in the crossfire. Yeah. There was so much. My father owned a liquor store. Oh, yeah. And my sister started to have these parties on <laughs> oh, uh, the no. weekends where not only would they drink his booze, they would leave the boxes at the end of the street. Oh. My father would go berserk, oh, say, you know, I'm going to lose my liquor license. <laughs> Forget it. It's like, you know, there's going to be no money. <laughs> the other thing my father used to address, my father would turn around in the station wagon, and smack all of us in the backseat. And we were less scared of getting smacked than he's going to drive the car right off yeah, the road. The road was <laughs> the bigger issue was dying at that point. The only time I've got my old man, we had a Buick Electra 225 convertible. Oh, that yeah. They inherited from my aunt and uncle had it. for. They sold it to my, my parents. My mom drove it. So we were going to Kentucky in that. And we were taking this cat that we had. A deuce and a quarter. Deuce and a quarter. I heard it at the, at the car wash. The cat came up and said, where's y'all's car? And I said, it's over there. He goes, that deuce and a quarter. I, said, that, I was like, wow, that's cool. <laughs> right. I heard more slang from my dad pre-anybody in my junior high or high school saying it because he was an old army guy, right? They had the slang, right. the stuff like he'd say, the dude thought he was bad. I said, Bad. <laughs> She, my mother would say, David, David, will you please just 
go easy on how you talk to these kids. He said, well, that's what we said. He thought he was bad. He thought he was a bad <laughs> dude. Be, I mean, a decade before I heard anybody on the street say, that guy's bad, right? You know, it's like <laughs> bad, bad, Leroy Brown was late catching up to me. And my dad said it in all other kinds of slang. And he said, well, meaning he thought he was tough. You know, he thought he was a real bad cat. And, and I used to say, and I, it was a fascinating moment. I got to take he and his wife to Europe with me. He had not been back to Germany. And he didn't want to leave. He was going to get married. I mean, thank God he didn't. I wouldn't exist. And the commanding general that took over his division had been the colonel at Bastogne in the famous note where he wrote back to the Germans, nuts. When the guy reads it, remember, the, it's in the movie right. The Battle of Bulge. He goes, nuts. Was is love? And he's like, and so he spoke German at the dinner table to us because he was there six years. He would speak it. He'd go, ah, they spoke on the Deutsch. Because G.I. dated this. And, and so that general took over and said, anybody been over here longer than 18 months, they're gone. He'd been there six years. He loved it. And so he had never been back. So I think it was in 90s, I was playing the Monterey Jazz Festival, Montreux Jazz Festival, not Monterey, Montreux Jazz Festival in Switzerland. And he, they did a bunch of things with this. I took them, we had several dates across, you know, around Europe, a whole run of stuff. And I took he and his wife. And one of the great moments for my dad and I to have shared was I got to introduce him to Johnny Cash. You know, he was a, I, that, that songs that made him famous, Sun Record, I had because my dad had it. The albums that I got exposed to were because my dad, my dad was one of those, what I used to call, and Cash knew what I meant, the hillbilly cats that were the GIs, right? That were otherwise would have been locked. He, What helped open my dad was the almost 10 years in the army. He went culture shopping, right? They were exposed to the world in a way that his dad never was. Right, they were locked in the Ohio. They didn't go outside, you know, from wherever he ran from Pittsburgh to Evansville, Indiana, along that river and the railroad. That was it. And my great, my granddad on my mom's side, he had. I remember when my my granny moved out to north of Dallas in Texas with uh, her daughter, the youngest of, of my mom's family, um, my aunt Kay, and lived with them the last year of her life. And she used to look, she said, Luther would have never imagined this Texas. She said, he had never thought there was any place this flat. <laughs> you know, because we were just, because you could see the sunrise and the horizon, sunset and the horizon, you know, for 100 miles. So anyway, my dad, and this really elevated him in a weird way, you know, Hillbilly Cats, they were the post-World War II generation of GIs, right, that, that occupied. Remember Elvis's great song out of GI Blues, Occupation GI Blues, right? Meaning it was his occupation, but they were occupying those places that had been right. conquered, right? So that's what my dad was. And uh, Johnny Cash and he, they turned out, they were standing there, and I introduced it, Dad, this is uh, Mr. Cash to Johnny, this is my dad, and... and I said, I think you guys might have been here. At this. And they turned out they were in Germany, stationed 40 miles apart, same years. And they hit it, you know, they were like, oh, yeah. But Johnny was in the Air Force, Dad, my dad was in the Army. And uh, so that was a great moment to share with him, to watch him, somebody who he really, you know, 
idolized and had those records, those early cash records, that stuff. And that's who he was, you know, those guys, Cash, my dad, you know, Cash out of Arkansas. And it's, you know, Johnny Cash, in reading his biography, <clears throat> you know, he was a code breaker in the Air Force. He listened to Russian code and was a listener. And that what is, what is you know, but he wrote Walk the Line. They still had to pull sentry duty. He, I don't know if you ever read this, but he wrote that song about pulling sentry duty on the flight line at the air base in Germany. He said, I keep a close watch on this heart of mine, right? Brilliant, huh? How genius is that art? You're pulling guard duty. And that's the difference in a guy who's a poet and the guy who's just turning the wrench and going, I just got to get out of here. You know, <laughs> John, Johnny writes that. I walked the line out of pulling guard duty. But it was an interesting moment for that and them. And it, it, So, yeah, wow, we've talked so much. I've never talked this much about my dad with anybody, uh, you know, Bob. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star starting May 15th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, 
Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Did you know from a young age you were somebody special and you were destined for a different outcome from, than your dad and your relatives? Well, like I said, there's probably enough narcissism in me, and that's just, I don't, you come in with that, and maybe, <laughs> you know. But firstborn, you know, you're kind of treated like you're expected to be the shining star, but you're also treated differently. I, you know, I, I've got a little guy at this point in my life, which, you know, I thought that train left the station a long time ago. It did not. We've got a little guy coming up on three years old, Dalton. And I watch, and there's a, and I said, he's kind of precocious, you know. There's something about, because firstborns are talked to more, you know. That and she and I are, you know, I mean, I'm, you know, a bit older than my wife, you know. And thank God that she's, you know, still got her youth on her side with him. But the the beauty of it is that we've never either of us. I think we just talk to him like he's an adult from the time he was born, just kind of expecting. And and my mother expected a lot, you know. And I think I carry with my mom. I had to get rid of some of it because it's 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 pack weight. You can't carry up that mountain, you know. If you're going to climb, you have to be able to shed it at some point. And I know when it happened. It kind of happened in stages, but. One of the moments was right before I left to come to California. You know, I, I just had a moment where we, she and I had, and my dad couldn't, he never got in between my mother and I. And I think it's because he felt we had a bond that was unique and different because she spent almost her entire pregnancy alone with me. We were down, you know, with my grand, her parents. And then the first nine months of my life, he wasn't here, right? He wasn't with us. So I think he always left the two of us. My brother, not as much. Well, he was, you know, there, you know, handed my brother and, and my sister. And my sister and dad had a very special relationship with it, you know, unique. And, and uh, her, you know, she was his little girl, you know, and it was, you know, and uh, uh, I think the connection to his own mother was, was my sister, you know, and. And uh, who he dearly loved, you know. And he used to say that about his mom. As much as his dad was rough on the three of them, he said, but we knew we were mom, mom, mother, your grandmother, Helen. She never let us go to bed not thinking we were loved. And I said, well, you know, good deal. Good deal. You know, so I'm in the through line. Uh, was that for us as kids you know we didn't have a lot you know when they were struggling you know week to week paycheck people and uh you know we had a a double aunt and uncle my dad's older brother was married to my mom's older sister that's how they met wow they almost became surrogate parents for they lived very close and they were both they never had kids and so we were there with them very close to them my aunt my dad's brother was larry and my mom's sister was margaret and she was about eight years older than my mom and and uh, his brother, Larry, was uh, six years older, I think, than my dad, or five, maybe five. But enough that there was a gap, and it was this, you know, so that was interesting, the perspective there. And, you know, so it's unique. And, um, 
Um, but this back to the car ride and the threat of death, you know, there was two times in that same Buick that, that, that Electra 225 convertible. And it's funny it was enough, like a, what year was it? It was a 65. Cool look. I mean, wow. white on white on white, right? Whoa, my, whoa. My aunt had now a talk black Talk about on, something that would be worth a lot today. My Oh, yeah. My aunt had a black on black on black. And uh, and then my uncle got this white on white on white when they had this pair of these. And then they graduated as I wrote. That's why my, you know, the guitarist Cadillac's reference, the album title and my original that that second hit that I ever had about the culture, the hillbilly culture, you made it if you had a Cadillac, you know, and a lot of American culture. You had made it if you had oh, a Cadillac. Oh, where I was, absolutely. You had a, with the Goombas and everybody, if you had a Cadillac, man, that was, you know, Rolls Royce, we don't know nothing about. But right. if you had a, so they graduated to the first Cadillac they ever bought was a 69. That's when my mother inherited, you know, the, the, the deuce and a quarter. So she was driving that, and we were in that, and we had this cat that we had no business having. You know, cats, anyway. We had the cat for about, I don't know, nine months or a year. And they decided, okay, we're going to take it down and give it to, you know, mother and daddy. She said, they'll, they'll, you know, they'll like this cat. We were taking it to Kentucky, to the hills, right? And my brother, my dad was put the cat, well, they had it in a box they put, so he would sleep, you know, they, and he didn't put it in a trunk with whole, you know, air, you know, vent, right. you know, so it was a vented like a like a homemade kennel. And my brother insisted on Topper being in the car with him in the back seat with my sister, brother, and I, right? And that thing was cool. It had stereo, but it didn't have air conditioning. 65 really? was still another. Yeah, it was a convertible. This is a luxury car. That particular one, the black one had air. But this one didn't have air. My my uncle actually had an after. Remember those aftermarket air conditionings? They would sit on the floor. We had one in our 64 Oldsmobile. Yeah, they would put them in afterward, right? The big box. Absolutely. Looked like a microwave oven dinner with vents, you know. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And reverb units. My old man bought a J.C. Whitney catalog reverb unit. Of course. Under the dash. It's like... It's just a reverb spring. Why would you have it on a radio? But it had the the front speaker and the one in the convertible, the deck, you know, the back seat. Right. And you could have those two. Because I remember listening to such great music in that car. In all, he had a '64 Ford Galaxy convertible, aqua blue with a white top, with the first glass back window I ever saw in a convertible. Most of them were plastic up there. And right. it came glass, and it would split when they would put the top down. Yeah, yeah. That 64 uh, Ford Fairlane 500. And then she had that Electra. And and he was another thing. He was like, you don't jack these cars. All the hot riders had them raised right in the back with the big wide oval tires. And he said, you ain't going to race nothing when they were the old NASCAR. And he's the bootlegger. And he said, we would put weight in that back end to keep it on, you know, in the trunk. His cars, they were riding like this, right? On, you know, on, that, on that angle, I'm doing like we're on TV. But you and I are looking at it. But on that angle, anyway, with fender skirts and all that. So we got this cat topper. My brother argued, wanted him in the back seat. So I watched him. He said, he said you can't open that box, that cat. You know, leave, just leave him in there. Well, we weren't. We were 15 miles from the house <laughs> doing a clover leap to get on the route 23 (laughs) 
and my brother reached down, popped it open to check on him. You know, my brother was always also very mechanically inclined, had tools that he would drive my dad crazy with his tool stuff being missing, and my brother would be out there in the garage with him. I wasn't. I was up in the room with the guitar. And my brother had to look, and the cat came out of there straight up, hit the ceiling, ricocheted across. It was nuts. You know, like, <laughs> it went across the ceiling into the... My dad tried to stop it and pin it. Now, we're doing 70 miles an hour. You know, it's pre-55. You know, it's like, you know, the speed limit's 65 there, and people were driving 70, 75, and 80 on the inner, on the highway. And... He's coming around that cliff, and the cat went crazy because we're doing a circle, and that's all the cat. And he hit the front windshield, then went across, hit my mom's side of the windshield, went back and hit past the three of us, and came back up and hit my dad and land, bit him in the neck, scratched him across the face while he drove. And I remember my dad, my dad, all he did was pin him with that big arm, and he grabbed it and went bam on the dash at the windshield, pinned him. He goes. I'm getting, my mother said, David, David, slow, you're going to kill us. He goes, I'm getting this car off the road. And he pulled over <laughs> off, he got off the clover, he got down, in the, and he grabbed that cat and had him by the, and his cat was, ah, jumped out of the car, went back out, got the cat, threw him in the cat tails. There were cat tails growing, in the, you know, against the side of the road, <laughs> down the medium, and threw him into that and let the cat was out there, by that point, because he had strangled him about, you know, get him out of the car. And he had a cut. <laughs> I mean, he was, and so he put him back, when, after they both coughed it out for a minute or two, he put the cat in, back in the box, said, bring me that box, and put him in the trunk, and we drove him on down. And he lived with him for <laughs> the next 10 or 12 years. That cat was still down there. And how he made it, because he, he, he stayed outside, but would come and sit in their kitchen window on an old tree, uh, and and stare in at him. They'd go out and feed him. They were a topper. Anyway, um, you were talking about your well, dad. We had a cat. My younger sisters. The cat went away for two and a half years and came back. Really? Yes. And it lived like, outside. Well, I mean, what was going on there? Because coyotes would get them out here. You're not going to live beyond. You know, cats are you know in jeopardy all. Somebody the time. else obviously adopted them and then didn't feed yeah, them right. Had them and then what? he came what? back to your house. Cats are strange right. creatures. Kinky Friedman, I don't know if you've read any of his, the kind of yeah, fictional little pulp fiction things that he wrote. Kind of pretty funny. Pretty funny stuff in his whole cat routine, his, his affection to his cats. He still has a lot of his cats. And, and uh, you know, I was so, just never a cat guy. I, I, you know, kind of a dog. I'm not dog really does. that much of an animal guy. But why are you Dwight? My mother just loved the name. People assumed... And I'm Dwight David, which was worse because everybody's like, oh, you named that. And I was like, no, my dad's name's David. So she wanted to give, you know, without making me a junior, which I appreciated that. But uh, Dwight, she just liked, you know, she just liked the name. And it was, it had been not commonplace at that point, you know. And Eisenhower was president, but, but, uh, uh, and then my uncle, her brother, the only boy in the six of them, he was, uh, was he three years older than mom? Yeah, I think he's three years older than my mother. They were very close. Guy Walton, my granddad always called him Peanut. He said, you know, old Peanut, he's a Pinkerton's man. He used to look at me and say, Peanut? He goes, my mom said, that's Guy Walton. Grandpa said, you know, <laughs> Daddy just always calls him Peanut. 
And they were both, my granddad was about 6'1 or so, lanky, just just looks like what those mountain men were. And and, uh, and my uncle was about 6'2", so calling him Peanut just was always beyond me. But, you know, he was a kid. And uh, uh, he would walk up, he was a good basketball player, and he taught me how to balance it on the tip of my finger, you know, spin the basketball. And he he never would quit calling me Ike. And Ike had nothing to do with Dwight's first name, right? I was Eisenhower. <laughs> Ike. And my mom said, Kyle Walton said, yeah, he just, he said, hey, Ike, how you doing? And at book of, my middle name was David from my dad. And, uh, and we gave Dalton, our little guy, um, one of my great regrets is that he didn't get to meet him. Uh, I, his middle name is Lauren, and my dad's middle name was Lauren. And, uh, you know, so there's a pass. So what have, you learned, what have you learned from being a dad? Uh, <laughs> hopefully, in measured amounts, some selflessness, uh, some willingness to impatience, and, and, and I, I'm still learning. So I'm learning every day. But uh, I've learned love in a whole new way, you know. That's the thing that I think I, I really, I shudder to think that I could have gone on through finished life and not experienced it now that I have it. You know, that, that you know, it's a, uh, I wrote a song that's going to be on this new album that, that'll, that one, two things with him in mind. One, he came into me because he's fascinated with the guitar, but he makes me pull it out, and he's got a little, Fender makes a ukulele version of the Telecaster, and he's had it since he'd done, he's been on the side of the stage for like 60 shows over the last year and a half or two of mine. And it's um, been interesting to watch. And uh, uh, his his kind of almost eerie, uh, uh, understanding of the two, me of both of us my wife Emily and his mom and me and it's interesting because he's born to you know parents I mean she was you know, 37 but I'm I'm you know so much older uh, and it's an interesting dynamic to watch him you know and and, and uh, but love love is you know the thing I've learned you know on a different level you know what about if you want to do one thing and the kid wants attention? I need to learn to give over. <laughs> it's tough when you've been as solo as I've been for as long. As, and as much as I love him, I have to remind myself, no, I owe him my attention. I owe him my attention because he needs it. You know, there's, there's a need, you know. And, and uh, uh, anyway, yeah, so... But, yeah. Did you plan to have him, or did you just? Well, we wanted we wanted to, um, and we didn't know. We were uh, yes, it was it was uh, with you know willingness that we did. You know that we. uh, Funny enough, we didn't need any help; (laughs) just our own encouragement. And here he came. And then, what about a second you were mentioning? Oh, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. You know. Well, but you know, the I thing think is, I think it would stop there. I don't think I'll have a middle. I may mean, have an oldest and a younger. You know. Well, know. they they need each other for when you're gone or when you're in your old age. Well, I see so that. I think so because I had and I see it. And of course, my wife, right. at twelve. You know, she just 
doesn't know how you'd have only kids. Although only kids, I've known you know some. You know, I don't, you know, uh, and oldest kids and only kids get along. You know, only kids tend to be very adult. You know, because they deal in an adult world in a different way than you know those of us that had you know the siblings to fight and brawl with and you know and, and, and engage in any kind of you know envy or jealousy with you know all that. But ah. It's just yeah, life. Okay, let's go back. Life's what, what John Lennon get... said. What life's what goes on while you're making other plans. I think that was his. Quote. Yeah, but now it's a little bit different when your time is totally your own. You know, once you have a kid, I don't have any kids, so yeah. they say that you're a kid yourself your whole life if you don't have any kids. Well, that's what it feels therefore... like now when I think back. That I got away right. with being a kid. I, I Peter Pan. But now the choices are different. I mean, if you have a kid, you can say, "Well, you know, we're just animals. We're here to reproduce. This is what it's all about." Where when you don't have a kid, your choices are more important. Like, well, this has got to count. I mean, some people are drifting. I don't want to judge them, but myself, it's like, well, you know, I didn't invest in a kid. I didn't invest in family. So my career thing, it's got to work because I didn't <laughs> sacrifice. You know. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic, and and uh, I love my wife even more than I loved her because she, because of her, she gave me this. You know, it's it's a very, very unique gift that Emily brought to my life, uh, and uh, yeah, she never thought anything different than that. You know we were we should have a child and uh i was never opposed to having kids and i always thought but again my plan was well when i'm really feeling that i've got it you know handled and everything's in order and you know i've got this and that and and then you look around one day and you're like oh that ship sailed i guess i don't think that you know my <laughs> life is good and then it didn't you know you know another 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 horn was heard coming across the horizon of the of the you know the ocean there and here he is so it is it but this is your this is your only yeah, marriage, marriage right yeah. again i i didn't i didn't so know have you been married this one once different before, or i've been married once before i've been married once before i've been living with my girlfriend well, I mean, like your partners years, yeah your life partners uh, now i mean you and she are like only yeah. been married once before yeah I just, right. I just, uh, again, you know, had this, my parents divorced, but it was after we were all three grown. So it's an interesting dynamic and they were together that long and, and, and it was tough on them. I think it was tough with my aunt and uncle, you know, the, the older brother and sister, they never divorced, you know, and, uh, uh, yeah. And so I probably felt apprehensive about it, you know, and I just avoided. I, I just, I, I also knew that I didn't want a marriage where I wouldn't be able to uphold the integrity of the of of the promise. You know, you know. I would, by the time I really started having any success, success, I was thirty. I was twenty nine when I signed with Warner and re-released the EP that had been out about eighteen months or so. So it was late twenties. And I thought, man, I've been broke and single all these this 
decade of my life, maybe I should be not broke and single for a while. And, feel, and then, you know, life gets in your way, and you like I said, the, the John Lennon quote, you know, it's what happens while you're making other plans. And, and she and I met. Um, we've been to, we'd been together, actually, for almost 10 years before we got married. We'd been in, engaged, and I, you know, I knew I wanted to marry her. And, uh, but again, I was you know, still trying to make things feel complete, you know, for lack of a better way to put it. You know, with my own just personal life. And oh, business. believe me, I know. That's you know, why I, I didn't want to get do. married the first time. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And then obviously you're old enough and you're in a position where you realize you never feel that. No, you finally, but, uh, yeah, you I have tried to, to give over. So how did you and Emily meet? We met in Nashville. She, I, she was working two, three different jobs. She had left, you know, uh, she was raised in Omaha. And she came from one side of the family, had cattle ranches outside. And... Uh, uh, well, both sides of her, her parents, you know, the, the Joyce side, her name's Emily Joyce uh, is her maiden name. And she, uh, she grew up there and then went to Creighton on a, on a full academic scholarship. She was a volleyball player and was going to go on volleyball scholarship in her junior year. Right after the season, she was a sectional player. Was a, and there was a car accident. A, a drunk ran a light and hit she and a girlfriend. She was in the pasture side, hit her in that side and, destroyed her rotator cuff. I mean, just so it ended the aspirations. She would have been a – she's 5'11". I mean, she was on her track to probably go to a Big Ten school or whatever. And Creighton gave her a full ride to do pre-med. And so she graduated a year you – know, she like you, she was a year ahead. She had done so much advanced placement and so forth. And she burned out finally because, you know, she was there with family at college. You know, she was still – being made to feel responsible, you know, for the, all those siblings under her, you know, the other 10 beneath her. There was one older brother. They're, they're 12 months apart, Irish twins, I think they're referred to as, and, and that close, so her older brother and she. And um, she left. She did one year pre-med, and she decided she could take getting close to patients. She was working in a hospital and, and, and studying, uh, and then she did nursing. For two more years, she had three years of, you know, almost a nursing year. She left and went to Nashville, joined the circus, and thought she'd go back to school there, but didn't. And uh, we met uh, in a restaurant there, and uh, she was working at one of the cumulus stations there in radio, like working right. you know, with a radio group. And, and uh, but we didn't meet in the station. And we kind of stayed in touch. You know, both of us were involved with different people. And then she... Traveled out here at one point, uh, just on a brief vacation, and we uh, saw each other out here. And then we began. She then she took a scholarship again at Mount St. Mary's University, you know, over in Brentwood, on top of the mountain there. That old that right. you know, run by the used to be an all girls. Uh, it's a Catholic university up there, but she did it some years later. She picked up and then she had moved out here and was doing that. And we began to date, you know, that following and then. And uh, uh, that's how we, you know, I met. And just there was some soul connection, you know, at that point. She's, uh, you know, pretty, but it's beyond that. It's, it's, it was, there's beauty. Uh, and <laughs> I heard it best described by a third party one night. We were coming out of a restaurant and, and, uh, 
the actor, uh, not Mira Sorvina's father, why did I forget his first name? Um, from Goodfellows to all, um, and he just passed a year before last. Um, Paul, yeah, Paul Sorvino was there and he flagged me over and we were talking because he was doing a bit of opera here in town at the time. He, he sang opera, I don't know if you knew that or not, the actor Paul Sorvino. And there was somebody else, a friend with us that was an actress and she reached over and was very, you know, effusive to, toward him and, and kind of telling him, you know, some things she was doing. And he looked across behind me at Emily and he said, you, you're soulful. And I told her, I said, that's the best description I've ever heard of you. You know, <laughs> there's a soulfulness. And so I, we met and, you know, fell for each other in and, and that way and, and uh, stayed with it. And I'm not easy, <laughs> to say the least. I'm, oh, okay, well, 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 stop it. Why are you not easy? Just who I am, you know, my nature, my, my idiosyncratic nature, you know. Well, uh, tell us a little more. Well, I don't want to go into it, Bob, because that'd be giving up too much. <laughs> I can't tell well, you. Well, you already what, got someone who my, accepted my, you. My idiosyncrasy. I mean, I just you know, look, you've I've lived alone. The order of my how I'm a neat freak, you know. I, I keep things in you know like certain spots and places, and, and um, I'm not. Uh, uh, I don't really have ADD, but I'm uh, obsessive compulsive. Probably, you know, I tend to um, horns. Even one night, Billy Bob Thornton was talking about, you know, uh, um, <laughs> OCD, and he said, "Yeah, I've got." We were at a restaurant. Remember El Soleil on the Strip? Uh, yeah, the yeah. Italian restaurant, great, great food. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> he was talking about it. One night, Warren Zevon was a friend, and, and and he said, "And did you ever meet Warren?" No. And all your, you, oh, I'm surprised because he, charming guy and, and and real wry wit, obviously, you know. And Werewolves of London was the, you know, the et tip of it, but, but you know, Thompson, the headless gunner, and all, you know, uh, right, you know, uh, excitable boy, all the stuff that he wrote. Lawyers, guns, and money, you know. <laughs> so, of course, shit's going to hit the fan. We're sitting there, and I used to say I knew Warren postgraduate. You know, he was settled down by the time I met him. He was not doing the, you know, the Peruvian marching powder that Kinky talks about. He's not doing that anymore because I've heard the stories. He said, so we're sitting there, and we're li and Billy's talking about obsessive-compulsive, you know, stuff. And he's, oh, i got to do this. And he goes on and on about obsessive-compulsive Billy Bob Thornton you know, disorder. And he's very open about it. You know, he's like... And Warren's listening, just smiles, that Cheshire cat grin of his, he's like, that smile, he goes, hmm. He said, have you ever had it with guns? <laughs> I was like, what? Have you ever had what? Have you ever had it with guns? <laughs> <laughs> As he talking, and we both like oh, sobered you right up, like, no, I never had it with guns. <laughs> Obsessive compulsive. Warren's like, hmm. He just nodded at him. Like, he's like, and I've, and since I know he was guilty of doing something up in Santa Barbara with guns. Anyway, uh, it, same deal one night. Billy was talking about that at the same restaurant. And the guy, that one of the owners, Paulo, who would sit and he was a little pit bull from Tuscany. And he, but he was like, sit there and he would smoke the cigarette 
holding it a la, Mar you know, Mastrioni or somebody. He's like, like holding it like upside down with his index finger and thumb to smoke. He was sitting there sideways to Billy and I. He would just plot down at anybody's table if he knew, if you were a regular at all and he knew you, and just insert himself into your dinner. You know, and so he goes, eh, see. And Billy was saying, you know, well, if I if I don't do this four times in a row, he'd chop at his thighs with his hands. He said. He looked at me and said, you'll die on the way home tonight. I said, well, I'll die if you don't do it. Why do I die if you don't do the obsessive component? He goes, well, I don't know, but that's just how it works. And Pablo, Paolo, Paolo is sitting there with his back to us, half listening. He was not realizing Billy's talking about himself. And he goes, see, see. He stopped with the cigarette. He goes, see, see, is maniac who does this. <laughs> is maniac who does this. I was like, yeah. So I'm not, you know, I'm not. I'm a little obsessive compulsive, I guess, and and but I'm not really ADD because if you stay with me long enough, my tangent will come back around. I'll figure oh, out. Oh yeah, I got that. Yeah, 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 yeah which is that there's a different. Some people assume if they're only with me for 15 minutes and I'm ADD. It's not that. No, it's that was that, the shrink when I first started to see the shrink. I was in uh, a bad space, and he thought that I couldn't track. That's like a big thing. Says, no, no, that I realized it always comes back to the beginning of the story. Well, watching, reading your writing, that's what was always, that's where I'd stepped on your train years ago when I started, you know, reading the, you know, the stuff you would, you know, your letter. And, uh, and I was fascinated with, and that must, it makes you a great writer, you know, the way you can take us on the journey and take the tangents and bring it back, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm a little untethered. Okay, but let me ask you a different question. Mm -hmm. The limo's there to pick you up, take you to the airport. Mm -hmm. Limo pulls away. Do you think you're, are you concerned whether you lock the door or not? A little bit. I'm usually so uh, compulsive enough that I've done it. I have a routine, like, you know, touch three, you know, touch this. <laughs> I don't do. I'm not. I'm not quite as extreme, you know. Well, you know, Billy, Bob, Billy Bob's is really extreme. I've watched. Well, you it. know, they can treat that now. And I went to a special doctor for it because regular talk therapy doesn't work. No, 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 no. I did. No, what you is know, it no, chemical you, therapy? You no, know, you have to do exposures. I remember it's like there are certain things. Be able to let go, like, right? You know. Well, it's like uh, if you know all the cans with poison on them. Like, don't do this. Don't do that. Whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Those scare me. So really? you work your way, you work your way up a ladder, just touching them at first. Then you get to the point where you use them. So it's it's an interesting thing. I mean, it, it never goes away, but you learn how to cope because otherwise it can torture you. Well, with Billy Bob, it does. That's why I know I don't have it as severely because I've been like what you're describing. I'll turn the cans facing away, but that's just kind of an aesthetic thing with me. I'm a, I'm really given to aesthetic. <laughs> do whatever you want, yeah. but that's OCD. No, okay. So I turn the cans, but it's not OCD. It's, it's aesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> it's the aesthetics, but not all. But I don't freak out if they're, although I will move something on it. I, 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 and I like asymmetry. I, I, you know, I like things to be, slightly asymmetrical you know just in a room or you know on the angle on the top of a desk and and then i, yeah, I but i let go you know i i tend to let go of stuff that, i mean like there's certain spots that are just a mess they're going to be a mess until i can get around to doing it and i don't i don't 
you know, I won't. People often think it's like, are you a hoarder? It's like, no, I don't hoard, because then they're shocked when I walk in and I have the time. I I I desperately feel like I need the time to focus, you know, and 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 I'll go through and. Do, when I clean it out, it's gone. It's like get rid of that. No, I don't need. I haven't used that in five years. That is that was a dream. You know, I was like I was. A, I thought I was being a Boy Scout. You know, by holding this and this and this and this. So I don't. I have bits of it. I have bits of it. I well, have you know, not all the things. You know, you can have different characteristics. I do have the hoarding characteristic. Although I, but is it hoarding? Progress. Is it hoarding or just preparing? First and foremost. I know where everything is. I used okay. to. You, you I've know, had to give like, that up okay. with marriage and, 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 and with a child. Um, you know, certain things are really hard to throw out anyway. Okay. Like what? Books. Well, really books. Especially okay. hardback books. I mean, hardcover. Yeah. I don't want to. Well, I mean, not only do I have the books that I have, I have the books that everybody sends me. Like, oh, okay. yeah, you must get. Okay. Rick Rubin. They did that special with him on HBO, Showtime, whatever. And he the, bought Shangri-La Studios, you know, up in Malibu. Right. And he's got a library with all these books. Right. What you learn is an incredible percentage of the books I have will never be reprinted. And right. no one else has these. Right. So I'm saying, well, when I can reach that level, I'll have like the same thing. Drives my girlfriend nuts because in the garage, I got stacks and stacks of these books. Yeah. And then as you get old, the older you get, everything becomes meaningless anyway. But it's like, well, man, all, all my vinyl records, I'm, I chose each and every one of those. I'm not parting with those. And the minor only thing I say, yeah. yet I say, when I die, <laughs> do not throw those away. They're worth tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars, you know, because they're meaningless to, you know, like my girlfriend. Yeah, but and you know she's like you in the house. It's like she likes order. But let me go one step further. Do you tend to ruminate on things? No, I let go. I will let go. That's that's a difference. You know, like you know, getting ready to get you know, this to the airport. It's like, uh, and I'll just make a plan to avoid it the next time if I've left something. You know, I'll make a, you know, I'll do something in order of getting out. That uh, well, I will tell you when they go for treatment, they get rid of all that. Which the order of getting out the or? the rituals you have to be able to lock the door and walk away. And the funny thing is, you have to do everything three times. You get to the point where you could do it because I used to be like you. I would hold. Okay, I'm going to rush. I'm going to hold the key and I'm going to think about it so I know that I can remember. Uh -huh. No, got to do it just quickly. You know, this is a whole nother avenue to go yeah. down. I don't have as much of the ritual. That's what I mean about right. Billy Bob and you, what you're describing. I never had right. the ritual stuff that I had to turn three, like stand, right. tap, 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 and then turn or something. Mine was more pragmatic-based, uh, I guess, and it allowed me to function, actually, to some degree. Okay, you know but I mean? let's, go, let's go back to the essence here. Uh -huh. Emily comes into the house. Mm -hmm. And she moves something. Oh, might bug me. <laughs> <laughs> she was great though. We had a housekeeper, a few, uh, you know, a couple of housekeepers back that came in, was all over, and she said, "I watched you. We were walking her through, and I'm saying, okay, and this and that, but you don't need to move. You can dust around like there's a an Athmos clock, one of those, you know, brass, right. you know." And I said, "But 
and they're and it's on an angle. It's not straight, okay. But for just the aesthetic, I just like it on an angle. Not because I think I'm gonna. If I don't do the angle, I'm gonna walk out and I. I got have, it. I got it. It's literally what pleases me. The energy. The almost almost the uh, what's the Japanese uh, the you know the. Um, uh, feng shui. shui, huh? Feng shui. Yeah, yeah, feng shui, of of that. So that it's almost that maybe. I don't you know of what. And she, she watched her go over. It. I literally said, "So stuff." So then you just leap. I have it placed very specifically, just because that's where I want it and how I like it. And she walked over two minutes after I'd said that and turned that clock. <laughs> she goes. And Emily was like, that's not going to go well. <laughs> we hired her and she worked for us for uh, two years, I guess. But there were those moments. Uh, just, and because Emily's a shrewd observer of, you know, she had to learn, you know, she had all these kids. She cut the umbilical cord on, uh, you know, her youngest brother in the hospital, you know, with her mom. I mean, she, she was made a caretaker, so she's, had to observe so she's been an interesting you know observational you know person to have at close range of me you know it's like well and, well usually she, when there's that when there's uh -huh. that many kids they know how to compromise like on all the reality shows they say the mormons you're not supposed to use that word anymore church of the latter-day saints they say they're, they're really to say good mormon i didn't no. hear i didn't get the memo man this well, then you're getting it now. Oh man! Okay. And why not? Why is Mormon? Yeah, you What's know, Mormon? I'm tuned into this only because I lived in Utah for two years. Right. Well, you ski and that up was there, an right? experience. It's much more cosmopolitan now, but uh, there's a reason, and I forgot it. Whoa! You can't leave me like that. Now I'm gonna have to go look this up. Uh, I, I can look it up while we're talking. Church, but yeah, I, I Jesus won't. Christ of Latter Day Saint LDS, right? Right. Yeah. You could say, hey. They're LDS, but, but you can't LDS, say, hey, they're Mormon. isn't that the extremist version of? No, no. Oh, okay. I thought the extremist. I don't even think there's a specific name for the extremists. Okay. Of which, I remember when I lived in Utah, we would go by somebody's house where there were six front doors. I said, oh, that's where the polygamists lived. Yeah. Wow. Okay, but since she has to get along with so many people, does that make it easier for her to be with you? Probably allowed her to put up with me. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Maybe so. Okay. Uh, Someone like you who's very determined and who made it. Let's say you come home and you say, you know, I'm going out to dinner with this person. I'm going to uh, to studio tomorrow, and then I'm going on the road for a week. She's going to say, that's fine? Or why no, didn't you no, tell no, me? No, 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 not that. I mean, she, and she traveled a lot with me. She was shooting a lot of my uh, live shows. She started shooting. She's a great eyes photographer. She finished her undergrad degree. She completely chucked medicine in any way and science and ended up doing her undergrad uh, when she finished her, her degree in history and English with a minor in English and and but she had so many credits amassed from all of her you know academic you know uh, years that she had to still put in on campus there at Mount St Mary's and so she the last year studied film photography with a pretty talented you know uh, instructor 
and she began to develop and they, you know using film and then transitioned into her digital camera and and uh but you can't teach someone to have a good compositional eye you can't you know what i mean no you, you know you can't teach it you can't teach speed as the old coach used to, you know right you, right somebody's either, you can coach it but you can't teach people to be fast right and um have you watched that reggie jackson documentary by the way uh, I have not watched it. I'm familiar with what you're talking about. I, I, I really didn't. I was a bit dubious. We were out on the road coming back, and I, I. But she traveled with me. It's 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 a good watch. It's an interesting perspective on him. It's a whole different perspective than what you and I probably had because he was Reggie Jackson in capital letters, right? When we, you know, right, 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 from the Oakland A's to the. But when you hear his whole, when he tells it now and now, it's a little bit. It's just, it's. It's pretty touching, you know, him, you know, and where he is and and uh, uh, what he did and how he, you know, he's, anyway, because um, I was a Cincinnati Reds kid, you know, I, I like, I hated the Orioles, you know, and, and I didn't like the Dodgers. I still, you know, it's tough sometimes. I was at the game them. the other day. I saw more people in the music business than I do at a concert, but. <laughs> I am not a Dodgers fan. Well, I was. I'm an American League fan. That's just the way well, it is. Well, I rooted for the Angels, and then turned out Gene Autry owned them, and he took me. You know, once my career had succeeded, and he had me come down and sit in his box one night, and he and, and they were playing the Rangers, and I said, you know, Mr. Autry, I said I don't. You know, Gene looked at me. He said, I said I don't want to offend you. I said, but I'm a huge Nolan Ryan fan. <laughs> the time I moved out here because I could root for you guys and hate the Dodgers still, the Angels, right? And I loved that they were the California Angels, not Anaheim right. Angels. They were the California Angels. So I went. To, he said, "Oh, come on, Nolan, would love to meet you. Come on." And he was on the bike. He wasn't pitching that day. He was down in the, in the clubhouse, and he was pedaling, watching the game. You know, Nolan just never get. Nobody will ever break that record, you know, uh, of no hitters. But. Um, Anyway, so I, because being a Reds kid, you know, I, I, the Dodgers, it was always exotic though, because their games would come on at a WLW in Cincinnati at like 11 at night. You know, we were right, there like, right, and it was right, dusty right. in the palm trees in the Dodger Stadium. There's no place like it. It's one of the most beautiful settings ever, you know, up there. And, and that old Union 76 gas station. Of used course, to be in the parking yeah. lot, right? Out in the yeah, parking. yeah, yeah. I remember that because we didn't have seventy six where I grew up. No, and you had to wait till the you had to wait till the next morning to get the results. I yeah. certainly remember yeah, from that. The West Coast. But wait, what but was anyway. it? Cross was it Crossley Field with the Cincinnati Reds? Then, yeah, the Crossley Field before they built Riverfront. Right, and then by seventy when they became the Big Red Machine, they were in Riverfront. They were, but Pete and Johnny Bench and all they came out of Crossley Field because they were those guys that were coming up in the 60s and uh the reds and brought to you by burger beer down there on the river and it was anyway um so yeah i um why did i talk about the dodgers and the reds you well, well i remember it had to do with your wife and the photography but i want to go oh, back no, she's traveling with me okay um, i get and, and we but what, let's switch gears why did your parents get divorced i I think, I think on some levels they were ill-suited to each other. Uh, my mother was had hoped for, I, I knew why she fell in love with him, you know, and he fell for her. He never quit, you know, he, he was smitten, 
when he met her, you know. But she wasn't prepared. She was a demure young girl from Southeast, you know, up in the holler there and just had not uh, been prepared for his boisterous self, you know, kind of, and uh, his nature. And I think the fear she lived with that his Walter Mitty-ishness, you know, kind of the dreaming and the we're going to, you know, it finally just, you know, kind of got to her to the point that she couldn't. And I don't think she, you know, he, he was the one, I think, that suggested it. You know, I was like, okay, well, let's, we should just, we should split up. And my sister had gone to college, and we were, I was gone. My brother, I'm trying to think if he had, anyway, whatever. I don't think was at home. And, uh, you know. It was never. It wasn't a case of either of them, you know. One like one cheated on the other. My dad never cheated right. on her, and uh, 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 disillusionment, you know. Truly, I think they just, uh, you know, and they had they had had to really just stay on top of it for so long to get us grown and you know and out. And I think I don't know, um, but I tried to understand. You know, for both of them, I'm, it was really my mother was uh, really conflicted, you know, because she had been raised to believe, you know, that you didn't divorce, and you know, her parents didn't divorce, never, and my the the closest people to them, her his brother, her sister, never divorced, you know, to the end of their, you know, my aunt died, preceded my my uncle, and. Uh, uh, and she always loved my dad. I mean, you know, to the end, you know, she, 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 she would say she, he was a good man. And I said, yeah. I said, you know, and, um, and we, you know, the bond of, can you imagine? Your parents were together, right? They Absolutely. You know, yeah. I don't come from divorce. If my yeah. ex-wife didn't leave me, I'd still be married. Weirdly, it doesn't feel like I came from divorce because I was two years out. He, you know, I was gone, right. you know, and it happened. As but I have a friend I went to college with, went through the identical situation. Mm-hmm. And he still hasn't gotten over his parents' divorce. Well, They're both deceased now. But My sister had the toughest time because she had literally just left him and, and felt somewhat betrayed that she went to college and they, you know, right. came back home and they're like the first, you know, Christmas break or whatever. And they're, I was like, what do you mean you're broken up? You know, it happened within that window. And, uh, you know, you're, you're divorcing. So, yeah. Uh, but I also saw, you know, I, I saw the things that made them different and the struggle that they had, the arguments. Again, I didn't come from Knockwood. My dad never struck my mother, you know. One time, I remember one time he might have threatened to spank her. <laughs> the kids, well, you're a kid, you're like, he's going to spank her? You're gonna, <laughs> I'm going to turn you over my knee, Ruth. It's like, spank you. And it's like, but... That was more just absurd than anything, you know, that threat. But see, my mother worked from the time I was... She stopped working for about three years, uh, I think, post my sister's birth, and then went back when I was in first grade, I think, to work. And she ran a data center. She'd been a typist, she, and she, she knew how to type. She started running and doing key punch operator, right? And she became 
she was she's a very smart woman. She became a computer operator. That was when they were the big old Univac, you know, right, IBM. Right. The, they were four feet, five, four and a half feet high by eight feet long, you know, and you fed cards, you know. That was our scratch pads at home, the you know, leftover punch <laughs> cards, right? The, you know, the key punch cards. And uh, she worked then that job for 25 years. Uh, and uh, uh, she drove her own car from the time I was a baby. She drove. You know, she, she had her own uh, She had her own credit card. She would come home from work. She, she followed sales. She knew how to, you know, she was a, a very uh, thrifty woman. She knew how to manage money, you know, with my dad on the other hand. You know, been the army. The army took care of you. If you ran out, you were still had a place to sleep and eat. And um, she, she uh, would take us to sales. The big department store there was Lazarus. You know, you go down to a basement sale. You would, you know what I mean? I mean, it's like she. That was that. And I, I, I she, she really did. Uh, you know, uh, conduct herself uh, on an equal let footing with my father, you know, in that way we, you know, we knew, uh, mom would, was able to do things on her own, you know, from the time I was a kid, I, it probably makes me expect more, you know, from women than what some are raised to be, you know, like I like assumed, well, yeah, you can do all your own things. You can take your, drive yourself, do this. Do, and, um, uh, yeah. So I didn't, you know, uh, suffer the consequence of a broken family. You know, we were grown and it was over and and they remained civil with each other and, and uh, you know, were able to be around one another. You know, Did either of them find someone new? Yeah, they both remarried uh, uh, and... And stayed with the person they were married to to the end. You know, my mom, mom's husband passed just about three was it three, four years ago, and uh, he was a bit older than her. He was probably eight or ten, maybe ten years older than my mom. And uh, and my dad remarried, and he outlived his his spouse. And um, yeah, but you know, I mean, I'm fortunate. It lets me as an artist. I think in writing, uh, you know, and that's maybe why I'm drawn to things that, like in film, you know, you were mentioning in, in writing about the guests, that book, that it's not entertainment. Right. I've never liked just entertainment. I like, I, like, I'd rather watch a Robert Altman movie. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know if you remember, remember when he got the Lifetime Achievement Academy Award. At the end of his life, he said... Now, I know some of you haven't liked all the movies that I've made. He said, but I just ask you to keep watching. It gets better. Meaning it's all one movie, right? It was a brilliant statement about I just remember when, uh, fuck, what was the name of the one with Warren Beatty shot in the Pacific Northwest with all the snow? McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yeah, that's one of the best. And and I heard Warren Beatty didn't, I said, yeah, because he doesn't act like a movie star in it. He's like a real person. And the compression of time in that. And he goes, you church mean that for chippies? I'm not paying that for chippies. And you know, the, the hookers that he's going. And, if a frog and, had wings, he wouldn't bump his asshole. Oh, and, and, the, and the deal, and because it goes from 
you know, it's not the first time compressed time is being used, but it's Altman's use of it in that film was amazing in that you see Warren Beatty go in to get, you know, the chippies, and it, and it, it, comp- it comes back up like it's now the spring coming out of the winter or right. like seven months later and the place is built and he's got and it's working. And that always fascinated me. And even the, the scene with Keith Carradine, it's one of Keith's oh, yeah. first on the bridge where, and, and the guy says, Oh, that's your gun. There. That's a nice looking gun. And you're going, don't, he goes, let me see that. Can you let me see it? Oh, you're going, don't, you know, and because the women in the place are watching it, they like him. You know, he's just this young green cowboy that is you know and you're going no don't but his ability with stuff like that you know is always the well, you know one. i think i've seen every well close to every one of them and kind of like it's very rare that someone can peak later in their career mm. but like shortcuts shortcuts was great oh yeah yeah again the, his telling of because his his movies are about the interaction of people with each other Always, it's not plot driven. There's a plot, and he'll get to it, but he's not in such a hurry, and it's not so overwhelming that that's the issue. Because that's entertainment, right? Plot. You know, you, you, anybody can write plot, but not many people can write character and dialogue the way. The other one is is even Peckinpah later in his life, right? When he delivers the seminal western is Wild Bunch because it takes you into and the way he was using slow motion photography, the violence and all that. But he, that movie, I argue always, is much more with one foot still in the traditional Hollywood filmmaking because of the score. Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid is the first rock and roll Western because of the way he scored it, right? right. Knocking on Heaven's Door, all the stuff, you know, just all the recurring, uh, the way it was done, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. But bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. Is the one <laughs> with, with Warren, Warren Oates, so great. Oh, with Warren Oates. Going crazy with with right the hooker that he's in love with right and trying to get the right. head, I mean, to me that you know that's fascinating and and it's maybe because I didn't suffer the same kind of angst. I never felt fearful in our house. I never felt fear from the outside world. As my old man was, I always felt it was a protector from the time I was a kid. For whatever his flaws were, nothing that you were, it was over that guy's dead body. You were going to do anything to our family. Do you know what I mean? I mean, there's a, and I realize now in knowing friends and close people that are close to me that didn't grow up that way or suffered under the, under the threat of violence within the house, outside, you know, people coming into the house that were extended family that were violent towards, you know, they're, you know, them and their family. I've just experienced it with people. And, and I'm like, wow. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky. And maybe that's what allows me to write about things that I, you know, the sadness of some things. Uh, uh, and and uh, the willingness to, you know, to watch it in film and, and observe it. And uh, anyway. Well, let's stay with Peckinpah for a minute. Mm. People say movies are too bloody, too gory. I've never had a problem with that at all. But the only movie that pushed me over the line, but I sat there in the theater, Straw Dogs. Whoa. 
Remember with Susan oh, George? Oh, yeah. Yeah, pretty rough. With teasing Dustin those Hoffman, guys. Right? Wow. And Dustin Hoffman, right? Yeah. Is it Dustin Hoffman or that guy? Is it Dustin? I'd have to look it up. Yeah, it is. It's Dustin Hoffman is her husband, right? Yeah. And they come and they're in, are they in Ireland or England? I can't remember where it takes place. It's either Ireland or England. Because they're, they're out of their cultural element. Right. And, you know, they're Americans that are tra- you know, there and living. Oh, yeah. I haven't watched it in years, but it's very disturbing. Very disturbing. Oh, okay, More so than Clockwork Orange. Clockwork Orange is a bit of a cartoon of that. This is so reality-based that it, it'll make you, you know, yeah, go get a gun. Uh, exactly. Yeah. But there's one of the scariest movies I've ever seen, Angel Heart. Is that the name of the book or the name of the movie? That's the movie, both, with I Dust- think, with Mickey Rourke Dustin and Robert Hoffman, Dustin Hoffman played Louis Cipher. Shit. Oh, Where's yeah. Film up? Yeah. Yeah, set in New Orleans, et cetera. Yep. Wow. Yeah. I even remember reading the book. Yeah, it was called the- Angel Heart. And uh, I remember reading the book because I had it. Somebody sent it to me. That even scared me. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. And, and, again, and I'm not whatever, scared that what, easily. Well, Straw Dogs, like you said, it is is disturbing. And it's, you know, uh, I've thought about it. I thought, you know what? There is something in, in, in the... Uh, safety of the life I was, I, you know, I lived and not that we didn't have up down problems and, you know, you know, my brother, you know, had his own issues and, 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 uh, there was stuff, you know, even in his early adult life that bled over into the family of him. But I realized the, the, the lack of being fearful in our own home that somebody else was going to come in, you know, and, and, do something to us or be able to, you know, have a free hand, you know, in coming over and, you know, uh, I didn't have to live with that kind of fear. Well, we didn't have that at all, but I think, you know, you're talking about being the youngest. My father was a guy who didn't fit in and he ultimately made his success individually and didn't have to fit in because he he was the youngest of the family. Was he, in terms of the kids, he was the oldest. Oh, okay. I mean, he had a rough family. One uh, sister, one brother was run over and killed in the driveway. Another sister committed suicide. I mean, it wasn't just your everyday family. Mm. But Mm. he, you know, not by today's rich standards, he would support you. He would buy you the sporting equipment and do that. Right. As, as long as you were getting good grades in school. You didn't want to hear that you wanted to be a professional athlete. <laughs> but as long as you were doing this, he would do it to the degree he wasn't trying to teach us a lesson. I remember I talking about this the other day. When I was 10, my father bought me golf clubs. Almost no clubs in the, there was a driver, a three, five, seven, three, five, seven, and a putter. Uh-huh. Everybody in the community went berserk. He's too young. To, I mean, we just played the public course. He's yeah. too young to have golf clubs. Within a year, all their kids had much better golf sets than I did, <laughs> you know? But he was the one, he didn't give a shit what anybody else thought. I mean, my father right. made a living speaking his truth. And I guess, you know, you get old, you think you're so different from people and you find out you're the same. I guess, you know, there there's some lessons I got from him. 
Same thing. Yeah, speaking your truth, <laughs> I don't think you'd, better, you'd be accused of not. <laughs> right, but I really don't know any other way. I mean, I tried to be the other way where, you know, kiss butt, play politics. And, you know, it's funny. I had a dream about this just the other night. You know, they said, how can you say this? You know, you're going to be ostracized. Most people learn to be a member of the group. That's not what my father taught me. Yeah. He stayed an out, outsider. Yeah. Yeah. So you were, you were successful. The classic thing is people buy their parents a house or something. To what degree did you buy your parents and your sister and brother on the payroll? No, I didn't. Uh, I didn't do that. Didn't have to. Thank goodness. I didn't. I mean, you know, they both you know, had their lives that were, you know, okay. Uh, but I was able to retire my mom early. You know, let her after twenty five years instead of working another five or eight or you know whatever. And uh, that much I was able to do was help her retire early, earlier. And, uh, you know, I've been able to give them things, you know, over the years, you know, gifts and stuff, uh, but, but never really. And then I was able to help my dad and his wife, you know, a similar kind of thing, just, you know, help, help them, you know, along, you know, so that was a benefit of, of the success, a great benefit of the success. But I always felt like I owed, because that, that guitar, he, he ended up for several years having to do piecemeal when we go hunting, rabbit hunting or whatever. He always had kind of a bullet. He ended up with not great shotguns. And uh, it was because I found out years later that, that that guitar I wanted so desperately at eight years old, I wanted a real guitar. Uh, he hocked a great shotgun that he had and uh, or actually just sold it. Uh, uh, to you know, have the money to buy that guitar that wow. Christmas, so I owe them a debt of gratitude. But I felt like, look, you know, and I think that kids that are able to give back to their parents, it's a gift to the kid. For me, anything that I was able to do for them, I thought was a gift because, like I said, I I was lucky, and I realize how lucky now when I meet some, uh, you know, friends and and hear of their life with parents that were less than mature about love. Do you know what I mean? Love. Believe me, we're talking about love. The sacrifice they'll make for love, you know, nothing else. That they'll give up their own selfishness for love. And my mother had that. And women, you know, the mothers do, you know, for the most part. Um, Obviously, there are anomalies and exceptions to everything, you you know, rule that that is. But Guys, we have to learn. We're, we tend to be selfish, you know. All right, you know, and and but selflessness is there when if you've got it in you, it comes out when they you know they look up at you and uh, like you said, I, you learn a different love, and that's that selfless love, you know, with a child, and that's what I felt. Look. I've read enough of you with your mom. You would do small things, whether you didn't necessarily buy. You didn't have to, you know, buy her a house. I didn't have to. With my mother and her husband were okay. You know, they were, uh, and and uh, she was always very cautious. You know, with with her money, I would, you know, I had a little bit of it in me. You know, at least save some. You know, had some 
you know, underneath the stereo or something in my room when I was a kid, I, you know, paper wrap or whatever. And, um, you know, yeah, I mean, you've talked about even taking your mom to dinner, I know, you know, and just things that you're able to do. Well, my mother, I mean, I'm going to talk about my mother. My mother was the, insp- like, if I wanted to go to a movie or I wanted to go to a play or I wanted to go to a concert, unlimited money for that. If you wanted to buy an item, whatever, that was a whole different thing. Okay, but, but to engage in, uh, in, in in art, art, watching art, yeah, participating. I in- mean, my mother once. I remember my mother telling me, "Hey, Country Joe and the Fish are going to be in New Haven." <laughs> it's like, okay, you know, I'm going to go. Whereas if you said, uh, you know, give me some money to go hang with my buds, no. But she would encourage you, and then if you got really into it. She would push back and, you know, <laughs> and I told some of these stories before, but my, one of my favorite stories, you know, in the earlier part of this century, basically everybody had a computer, even your parents because of mm-hmm. AOL, whatever. So you send email to your parents and I forward like, you know, sometime 2004, three, whatever. I forwarded an email from Quincy Jones. Mm-hmm. And I never heard anything. So the next time I spoke with my mother, I said, you know, you know, I sent you an email. Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, did you read it? Yeah. yeah I read your email. You know, the one, yeah. Quincy Jones. Yeah. Yeah. I read it. Well, you, you weren't impressed. It was Quincy Jones. Yeah, whatever. Blah, blah, blah. I said, Quincy <laughs> Jones. She, you mean the artist? I just figured it was somebody same, same name. How would you know Quincy Jones? <laughs> <laughs> you mean the artist? <laughs> she figured you know she would put you down who are you how would yeah. you know them, how would you bob know quincy jones that's hilarious yeah now i you know yeah the dynamic with with family is is interesting i mean fortunately they were they never traded on it you know when i be you know the success happened they they What's going on? Oh, somebody overheard us. I heard somebody outside repeating what you said. They're they're hearing it on another speaker and they were laughing about right. even the fact that your mother was shocked you knew Quincy right. Jones. They they uh uh yeah. So I you know, knock wood. I lucky well, how did guy your that siblings way. how'd your siblings cope with your level of success? Really well. Really well, actually. I mean they they didn't again didn't expect much. I mean, I would, my brother had a bit of a struggle, you know, in, in, in uh, life. And he helped my sister and I enormously. He went down and took care of my father when my father had a dementia. He didn't have Alzheimer's, thank goodness, but he had a arterial dementia in the last couple of years of his life. And my brother, because he'd gone through a divorce and was kind of in a different space, he moved there and stayed, you know, and, and stayed the course with him. And, and actually, you know, witnessed he was in an assisted you know a place my brother would go every day you know take him wherever he needed to go and do whatever and for him that was one of the greatest gifts he could give my sister and i you know that he did that that he did that for my dad uh i loved him even deeper than i did you know my brother i loved him but but uh you know it really played on him hard uh he we think he casually 
that first year of COVID, he passed uh, young, like 62. Wow. No, 60, wasn't even, it was 61 or 62. And we think now that he may have had uh, Lewy body dimension, you know, which is what Robin Williams yeah. was diagnosed with after the fact because right. they don't know what it is. And they start having, and my brother had been at close range watching dementia take my dad, and, and it was tough on him. And, and, uh, so I was, you know, but I was able to, you know, help him by helping us and, and let him, you know, do that. And, but no, they never expected, they'd never tap, you know, I mean, I've been able to do things with and for them and, and with them. But, um, you know, uh, no, there was no, no house buying or things like that. I was, you know, I've done some bit of lavish gift giving and over, over time and, and I did, you know, end up with a plane. One of the ways my brother built some multi-time, we have, because I, I love flying and I couldn't do it. And I bought a small twin engine jet, not jet, but a plane. And he flew it. And then he built his time and he, on his own, and he started doing, you know, flying and, and jet flying and so forth and, and doing it with first, you know, carrying uh, overnight banking, you know, back in the, even the early 90s, they were still, it was paper. They had to move it overnight, and that's one of the ways these guys will build enormous amounts of hours in flying, is they'll they'll uh, hire on to uh, you know check flying, and he did that for you know a couple of three years. He you know flew charter and anyway, um, but uh, yeah, so no, I mean I mean you know not having to struggle with. Uh, the function of life allowed me the luxury of being able to uh, explore within myself whatever I needed to do. You know what I'm saying? It's like I'm not having to put myself back together, you know, and I didn't, I never, never drank. Uh, I just, I was raised, like I said, in, in a very absent environment. You know, until I was an adult. And by the time I got there, I mean, all those kids, like, I'm like, and I've watched it all. You have, but at close range, in bars, and I've seen professionals. I know, you know, and just, it never, because I had an event horizon that I kept staring at that I thought, I need to, you know, I need to be awake and alert and sober, and I need to know what the hell I'm doing, you know? And I don't want... Uh, they just never. I, it's just not my nature to to want to uh, to come in. My old man smoked cigarettes and never never because of my throat. I didn't want to wreck. You know, weird. Early on, I I knew from an early age I wanted to do this. I wanted to sing, and I thought I may I may be able to do this. You know, and and I just. Uh, uh, well, tell me about. I know you didn't want to abuse yourself, but tell me about knowing that you wanted to do this. Yeah, I, I just, from my earliest memories, and it's strange, I see it in my little one. He, It's almost a knowing about, you know, like he knows, you know, and it's my wife observes it in a different way because for me it just reminds me of like, oh, yeah, I remember feeling, you know, that I could do this. I could make people, uh, it's just, yeah, I, I, 
And again, you can't teach, and you have to have an experience along the way that lets you confirm if you've got any level of intelligence, I think you have to, you want to make sure you're not just delusional, right? So you've got to do it outside. Two things can happen in the home. You can either be on the coffee table and you're just, you know, the precocious little darling that, uh, you know, they're going to dote over whether you're any good or not, or you can get the tall poppy cut down, right? You know, I've seen both in families. Mine, it was not either. You know, they weren't just indulging me. But they knew when I came down with that concoction of a song about Vietnam that there was something up. They didn't know what because they didn't know. You know, there are people, they're so far removed from show business, you know, they don't know anybody that's even got a cousin that, you know, uh, did anything uh, at the local radio or television station. So I was left to my own devices. And then by the time I got junior high, the first two years of my junior high was at a school. It wasn't a middle school. It was junior high. But they, the freshman class had been, it was a new area that had been built. And we'd moved to this, this track home out there. And the high school had freshmen through senior. And so my junior high only had a 7th uh, and 8th grade. And then my freshman year my ninth grade year was at that junior high and in that year my former eighth grade history teacher because they added uh the third class uh, of students he started a drama program he started teaching you could take a drama class and and so he started putting up one act plays and i walked in and was able to be cast like i was good i, I just needed to be doing the reading and he and he cast me and I did a couple of these plays. And then I started doing it in high school. There was a great theater department there, and uh, a fellow named Chuck Lewis, uh, who was the uh, theater teacher at that high school, who ran a summer stock company, Weathervane Playhouse, this thing in Newark, Ohio, outside. So he brought a certain level of professional expectation to how the stage was going to be run, how you were supposed to behave. So I got exposed to that in there. And I was always in band, too, marching. I was trying to play football. I was all of 135 pounds when I was a sophomore in high school. And we had an all-city team. I mean, it was like getting knocked around like a rag doll. And so by my sophomore year, I stopped after my sophomore year. And I was became marched one of the two bass drums in marching band. My, my letter jacket is band. It's funny enough. Uh, ironically, and uh, we had a great marching band and, a, and an instrumental drum a band, you know, program, a stage band. I played drums, not well, but um, and the theater department. And every other year, they would do this combined variety show, you know. And I well, back to what I was going to say. One day, the theater teacher in, in the junior high, um, his name was Stubbard, gave me a ride home, gave me a lift home. And um, from something we're doing, I don't know if it was a rehearsal or whatever. And uh, he pulled on the driveway and he said, you know, I don't know what your parents do for a living or how, how they are. He said, but I don't know how to say. He said, I think if you want to, you could make a living doing this. And I was kind of like taking it back a little bit. I said, what do you mean? Uh, make a living doing what and like he meant no performing you know what you do in in the in what we're doing in plays and so he said i'm not sure how to tell you how to do it you know because it means a history teacher that 
But that moment, you know, there's a moment that someone gives you confirmation, a third party who's not your parent, not your aunt, uncle, no relative. In that moment, I, and again, I'm just um, obstinately, obstinately optimistic enough, maybe egotistical enough. Uh, to use that as a handhold, you know, that was the next. And then in that high school theater department, I started doing plays very immediately. And in my junior year, I happened to be walking down the hall and heard part of the stage band guys trying to do some, in some fashion, rockabilly. And the, and the, the drum major from the marching band, and he was a trumpet player and stage band, was attempting to be the singer, and it was awful. I heard it outside the band. I walked in. I was like, what are you guys doing? And they said, well, you know, we're going to do it for the show. Because I was going to host it with this other guy. We were doing a Smothers Brothers shtick, you know, and he had an upright bass, and I was playing guitar. I remember I performed Loudon Wainwright's hit Dead Skunk in the Middle of the Road during that, which was a brilliant song, actually. And it's on crossing the highway late last night. He should have looked left. He should have looked right, right? Didn't see a station flagging cars. Skunk got squashed, and there you are. You got a dead skunk <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> Again, you talk about post hippie kind of weird song. Oh, yeah. Weird song world. You know, it was there by then, you know, like 1973, right? Right. And uh, um, so I was doing that, and they knew, and they, I, they said, well, we're you know, doing this kind of like, a, you know, Sean and I kind of thing. I said, well, he said, but yeah, but he's not, you know, I said, you mean like this? And I took the mic, and they started playing whatever they were, and I started singing. And they didn't know I sang, because this was stuff I did at home. You know, I wasn't in chorus or choir. I mean, some perfunctory one course, you know, I did whatever vocal music as an elective. But nobody knew I sang. And in fact, the theater uh, folks from my sophomore year thought that I couldn't sing at all because... I did a play, Miracle Worker, right? You know, that was the kind of, you know, and I was playing the younger brother and he had to sing Buffalo Gal, aren't you? I never heard the song. So they, and I couldn't, I was like, and then the theater uh, instructor directing it was like, he said, it's, and he hollered it out to me from the seats, you know, in rehearsal one day and like hollering. I was like, okay, I don't know, I think I get it. So it was this, you know, kind of weak performance of that that I did during the play. So they were stunned when they saw me come out with this band and take over the, that show and kind of have that moment. And it's and it's it's that weird seminal kind of thing. And there were girls went crazy and we were, you know, it was like this nutty moment. And you kind of again a confirmation of something. And it probably did more to wreck any kind of uh, academic pursuit that I would have ever had, you know, because. Because I now in the back of my head, and I had that band, and we started playing at other schools, you know, that wanted to have throwback sock hops and you know that kind of stuff. And I mean, I had like a gold lame suit done after that, and it was, like, it was ridiculous. But it was this—it was rockabilly because I was showing them. I said, like, well, what about this? The Everly Brothers and Buddy Holly stuff, which had more hillbilly to it. And I didn't really delve into. Um, that aspect of what I was going to do till I started writing right at my senior year of high school and writing stuff to sing. You know, I wrote something called Lovely Brown and I wrote something else called um, um, 
Anyway, and after moving out here to the West Coast, because by then I knew, because that was in those years where the transition was happening, you know, the whole thing with the Bakersfield Bee, as I told you, is about how the California sound springs forward from the Tom Joad Road, you know, from the Grapes of Wrath era when Buck and Merle's family end up out here in, in labor camps, right? And they bring that music from Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, the Dust Bowl, to the West Coast, and then there are those that preceded the Maddox Brothers and Rose, all that stuff, Woody Guthrie, all that. But then by the 50s, late 50s, Buck starts to have the success, and in the 60s, Merle. And Chris Hillman and I have talked about it. He was this West Coast mandolin-playing kid who loved bluegrass music, right? Late 50s, early 60s, and ends up, by default, the bass player for the Birds because... Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy that produced and put that together, but Tickner, I think was his last name, he knew Chris from the bluegrass band that he'd been in and had recorded him and said, hey, uh, I think it was Gene Clark first and and then Jim McGuinn at the Troubadour put themselves together, right? And that, So all that was going on in my late adolescent, early teens, and I started hearing it. And it was the hidden part of my culture, right, that I couldn't have much affinity with with those kids at that high school in Columbus. They didn't understand what I listened to at home. Like my best friend across the street in that track house, you know, world that we were, he, now his mother was from South Carolina, but he didn't grow up with that same kind of hillbilly edge, but he watched me listen to Stonewall Jackson records. I mean, you know, 14, 15 years old, i I've Got Life to Go, which is written by George Jones. I mean, you know that song is, I've been in here 18 years and still got life to go. He talks about his family. It's a brilliant, brilliant song. George Jones wrote it. Stonewall Jackson, it, it had a country hit with it. But my dad had bought that album as an apology to my mother. It was called Don't Be Angry With Me. It was the, the hit off of it. Don't be angry with me, darling, if I fail to understand all your little because they'd had an argument he that's his way of he brought this album home to her to, to apologize so i was listening to all the other stuff on that record johnny horton my mother was in the columbia record club the only thing that she ever regretted being in there uh, was when she ordered because she was a big fan of herb albert and tijuana brass and got the whipped cream album. My brother and I got it first at like nine or ten years old. I think it was eleven, which was even more dangerous space. I was looking at that album cover, and she forever regretted that she she ordered that album, although she loved the music on it. But so I was listening. But my dad had, and like I said, the, the Johnny Cash stuff. But she had the Johnny Horton stuff that had Whispering Pines. You know, of course, the, the hits, Bismarck and all that, north to Alaska. But uh, the other one that I, I clung to, I was playing it in clubs after I you know, was out here in Southern California. I would do when it's springtime in Alaska, it's 40 below. You know, just, I mean, all that they didn't know about. The My peers, they wouldn't understand. You know, I had a cousin, Mike Christian, he played a bit of guitar and he got it because his family were the same hillbilly transplants. But not many did. So it was a, kind of a hidden part of me. But what country rock happening did, and I've said that the Burrito Brothers were the most famous band that nobody ever heard. You know, their reputation preceded them and out, out 
outdistance their the reality, right, of their records. Uh, and Chris and I talked about that, and I, but I knew of Graham Parsons out of that moment, and him being these long-haired kind of hippie cowboy, you know, guys doing this thing. And Mike Nesmith from the Monkees was doing it, you know. And then when he post Monkees formed the first national band, right, and did Joanne and Standing in the Lonely Light of the Silver Moon, all that, you know. And I was like, you know what? Maybe country music. And the thing Brian Ahern did with Emmy Lou Harris, and she gives that credit to Brian, that after Graham died, she went back into the folk scene, back to D.C., you know, and, and kind of, you know, just in shock and in, and I think in a moment of depression back there. And uh, I think it was, I can't remember if it was Mary Martin that, that, that uh, from record label that, showed Emmy and gave demos of Emmy's stuff to to Brian. And Brian had a deal with Warner, and he moved her out here, and he put the band together, the first hot band. And more so than the Linda Ronstadt stuff, because the first couple of Linda Ronstadt albums I was a huge fan of, too. And then Peter Asher came aboard, and they kind of moved it into the pop iconism, you know, the, the, the iconography that became her sound, you know. Uh, and then, of course... The Begat and Begat was, you know, you got the birds and all that stuff. The Sweetheart of the Rodeo album had happened, but I didn't have it because I didn't have an older sibling to direct me there. You know, it wasn't the hits. I just had what I could find on my own. And, but I felt inside, and Creedence Clearwater Revival was, you know, they were, John was a hero of mine just because of what he was doing musically. And as I grew to know what it was later, He's writing the songs, playing the lead guitar, producing the records, really, you know, and control, you know. And then he did that Blue Ridge Rangers solo excursion they did after. And he took again, and it, there became this pertinence of country music having its moment again. So I realized, because I had an epiphany one day when I was the last trip I ever took with my aunt and my mother, when I was still. Um, just in took to Kentucky. Uh, we sorry, bumped in that mic with. Um, the last trip I took with them, my aunt's Cadillac. Uh, my sister and I went. My brother didn't. He stayed home with my dad that weekend. And we went down. And I remember listening as we crossed the river from Ohio into Kentucky. And these AM stations began. You would pick up. I mean, religious programs even during the week. Uh, and it was very rural radio all of a sudden. You were there, and it was exposed, and, and hardcore hillbilly stuff. And I remembered on that drive, this is maybe at that point 15 or 16. I wasn't driving yet, so I was probably 15 years old, 16, but old enough to feel the future, you know, to sense I wasn't going to be here. And I remember looking across at the hills when we were just north, just out of Cat Ashland, Kentucky, and headed into Catlicksburg, uh, where I would always hear about the car wreck where they went off and they flipped. They're lucky they lived. Uh, my mother and my aunt and uncle going back home, um, and uh, flipped a car because it was just a dangerous, dangerous road. And I remember we got past there. She talked about that again every time we went through it. We had to hear about the wreck. And I remember looking out and thinking, 
and not knowing anything about what that meant or why I even have the thought other than, you know, like unbridled ego. I don't, I thought I'm supposed to, I'm going to sing about this, about these people in this world. I'm supposed to, I felt like that epiphanous moment was that. In retrospect, I've thought about it several times over the years that have ensued and once my career started. Because you don't, you, you can attempt to plan to have a journey, but you cannot be prepared for the topography of the journey, right? The landscape is going to be different than you imagined. And, and and you won't be prepared for it. I wasn't. I wasn't prepared for that. You know, for the for the the physical geography of you know. I, you can look at a map, but that's one dimensional. You can look at a map all day long and plan and think and, but when you're really there, it's different. And I remember that as, as I say, looking back over the years and thinking to that moment in that car with them. It was just a silent thought as that radio was playing all this various fading in and out AM station stuff. I thought, I'm supposed to, this is what I'm supposed to talk about and do. And then after I was here for about a year and a half or so, I came across the very first John Prine album, that first Atlantic record that he did with, yep. with the Memphis Boys. Did you read the book, The Memphis Boys? It's not great writing, but... Such a wonderful tale. That's Chips Moman's group that started out. The first record they ever had was "I'm Your Puppet" that he and Dan Penn cut, and which became an East LA anthems like "Hey Sophia, I'm Your Puppet." The lower corner just always imagine Art Bell. I'm not uh, was it Art? No, I mean Art LeBeau. Art LeBeau. Right? Remember Art LeBeau? I'm your pu-. all those songs. Like, uh, was it KRLA that Art LeBeau was on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. KRLA. I'm the Amber. I mean, that was L.A., you know, in the 70s, right? It was still there, you know, the, you know, the culture, the car culture, you know, Hot Rod, those songs. But they did that, and they made the spectrum on those guys, the Memphis boys, like the Wrecking Crew. They did stuff that was, I mean, Dan Penn produced the box tops. Right. Give me a dig up on air. Alex Chilton, right? And these right. teenagers. And he was so his voice sounded like that from what I've read, because he was so jacked up. See, he and his girlfriend were so excited he was going to go in and record. They stayed up for like two days straight before, and they drank. And he was all messed up when he walked in and sang that way. The "Cry Like a Baby" is one of my favorite too, because yeah, C- Dan the, Penn wrote that, right? The, yeah, the electric sitar, right? The, the, right. But but those guys went from that's into the spectrum from, and they also did the Gentry's. I keep on dancing. Of course. Fades out and fades back in. Yeah. And 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 they did that. They did Neil Diamond like a month before they cut the comeback record for Elvis, the Memphis record. That's the one they did. And I, I was reading in the in the book, it was um oh the guitar player for um um oh I just went completely blank on uh oh if I that's it's horrible. I can't even Anyway, uh, he was saying, you know, we were nonplussed. You know, and Elvis, he said, yeah, sure, right. sure Elvis wants to come and cut with us. He <laughs> knows who we are now. We're, we've just cut Neil Diamond, Sweet Caroline. We've done this and that. And he said, but the night of the session, because it was at night, because Elvis, you know, started at like 7 in the evening, right? He said the door opened. He said, we were all sitting there just going, yeah, I guess he can. 
And he said, we looked up and went, holy shit, that's Elvis. <laughs> he said there was nobody <laughs> that ever came to that studio. But, that, but to finish that thought, they did that spectrum of music. I mean, they were doing all the Wilson Pickett stuff, like Mustang Sally and all that. They were doing some of it first in Muscle Shoals until he built the studio American Recorders in Memphis. But Elvis, that was in Memphis, Neil Diamond. All, and then they did John Prine's first album because um, Wexler, right, at Atlantic, that's, he heard the, the I'm Your Puppy. He said, who did this? He said, I want a wreath of a cut with them. And that's the famous story of how they went. But And then she left the whole session, you know, at fame because of whatever was said to her. There was some, you know, horrible off-color remark or whatever. And he said, she won't come back down there. He called Chip's mom and he said, but she liked you guys. And he said, she ain't coming back to Memphis or Muscle Shoals. He said, but... She wants you to do it, but I'll bring it to New York. So he brought those cats up there. And you know who's on on that uh, chain of fools? Because Dan Penn had writ- written Do Right Woman for her, and he, and he was right. smart. You know what they did? They let her play piano. That's what Wexler was smart about. They, in, it was the first time all of her career up to that on Columbia, she'd not you know been allowed to accompany herself. And she played piano and sang Do Right, and it took off. But Chain of Fools is Joe South doing that pop staples, that guitar. Chain, chain, chain. It's amazing. They cut. Did you ever see her? No, I never saw her. I, I saw her at a award show. I saw her do one, you know, like that, but I didn't see her in concert. She, it was, you know, it was very interesting because she knew who she was. Yeah. Okay. And she sauntered out and <laughs> she just delivered. It, it was it was kind of like the Elvis moment. They walk in, oh, that's Elvis. Yeah. Well, that's Aretha. She can do it effortlessly. She can blow your mind and walk off the stage knowing she's Aretha. It's not like she's feeding off of you. It's like you're stunned. <laughs> Just drop the mic and say, follow exactly. that. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I mean, you. Yeah. I can remember she said it when you hear chain, chain, chain. Oh, because that that was really the killer. I that mean, opening you know, the- guitar riff, and it's a, it's like a like Joe South. I found out later, Joe South is who's playing that guitar with those guys because he knew Chips and Chips was from Atlanta, and that's where. I mean, Joe South. That's another story altogether. Somebody. Well, Joe that- South. He had the one hit. We had two. Did he have- He had "Walk a Mile in My Shoes" and then the games people play. Both okay, I forgot the hits. first one. But, but could he, he survive wrote- his? Could he survive? Did he write anything else? Oh my God, Bob! He wrote. He wrote. Na 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 na. Hush, hush. Deep Purple. Oh, oh, right. I think right. I hear right. calling my right. name now. Hush, hush. And he wrote one of my favorites. It wasn't a huge hit, but it was. It, he wrote. Um, down in the boondocks, down in the bo- down in it with Billy Joe Royal, right? Billy Joe Royal. Lord, Do you remember what the label from down in the boondocks? Do you remember what label the Deep Purple record was on? No, Tetragrammaton. Gram- it was Bill Cosby's label. Really? Okay, since we're yeah, since oh we're so deep God. into this, what did Billy Sh- Joe Shaver survive on? Well, he wrote that whole Honky Tonks and Heroes first album for Whalen, right? And his son, Eddie Shaver, what a sweet soul, a kid that grew up right in the thick of it. I mean, he was with Waylon and all of them and Willie. And I mean, you know, from the time he was a year old, wandering around. And Eddie had demons, but he was just such a sweetheart. And what a great guitar player. I saw him play with his dad at the club lingerie when he was 
15 maybe years old in like 1983 or four right as I was putting out my EP. No, it was 84. And then in 87, Pete Anderson, who had been playing lead guitar with me and going out, couldn't do it. He, he had 14 offers to produce. He said, I got to do this. I got to stay here. We have to find a guy. I said, I know who to call. And I called Eddie Shaver and he came Really? Out. Yeah, Eddie Shaver played with me. That year, and he did it again in 89 when Pete couldn't go out for, you know, producing. And Eddie toured with me in 89 again and into 90. And it, it just, I mean, a whole different style of playing. He's a Texas big hand, you know, lead player. But Billy Joe, I mean, he's written some great stuff. I'm just an old chunk of coal. John Anderson had a huge hit with, you know, I'm going to be a diamond someday. That wry tongue-in-cheek. But, but um what was I talking about with the chain of oh uh, uh, Joe South the other one right. the other one that he wrote because he owed songs he was on a plane to L.A. to meet with his publisher to get a new check you know he's living on the you know advances and he and he hadn't delivered two or three songs right and on the plane ride from Atlanta out here he wrote I beg your pardon I never promised you a rose garden right. Along with the sunshine, there's got to come a little rain sometime. So, I mean, he wrote some great stuff for other people. The one that I love is Don't It Make You Want to Go Home, which I think B.J. Thomas said. was like, don't it make you want to go home, children. Don't it make you want to go home. All God's children get weary when they roam. Don't it make you want to go home. Anyway. Uh, well, you know, yeah. I grew up, you know, where we only heard those songs when they crossed over. Yeah. It's like Tom yeah. Petty, one of the last times I saw him, he played some country song and he called, you know, today's modern country music is the rock of the 70s. If you grew up in the Northeast and you hit the country station, you saw it as shit kickers. Yeah. It's not like today. So there's a lot of history we don't know. Conversely, I have to ask you, yeah. to what degree were you into the Beatles and the rock scene? Oh, I was, you couldn't escape the Beatles because of AM radio, right? You know, the buttons. And my mom listened to every station. She loved the big top 40 station. It was on her car radio. My dad was the hillbilly station, you know. WMNI was the hillbilly station. You didn't get in his car and it wasn't on anything else. It was on that. I was hearing, the one that crossed over a little bit was Henson Cargill with the skip a roll. The doom doom, skip a rope. Ain't it kind of funny what the children say? Skip a rope. It was about a divorce and a couple, and it's like there was that kind of stuff going on at that time. Late '60s, the psychobilly era had kind of taken hold in Nashville, and there were crossover hits. Harper Valley PTA that was a huge right. pop hit, and that was a straight up hillbilly record to begin with. You know, it was out of you know, kind of the country politan moment. But uh, so all that was going on. I mean, you know, and then by the early 70s, you had Jerry Reed breaking out right. of the Nashville scene, doing Amos Moses and all that stuff. Uh, you had Tony Joe White doing Poke Salad Annie, which Elvis first covered. And so there was this, uh, that was the beauty of Top 40 Radio really was that, right? In that moment. Well, I remember the last crossover record was Charlie Rich, Beautiful Girl in the World. After oh that, Everybody had an FM radio, yeah, so you it, didn't oh, have to listen to the top 40. Right, it became That's segregated. You know, when you come like, you know, poke salad, anything, I just know those listening to the top 40. Yeah, no, it, it was. And I didn't, 
Uh, and Charlie Rich, yes, along with the other guy that Freddie Hart had, Easy Lovin' that crossed over, which was this West Coast thing that you know he did. Uh, Charlie Rich with the most beautiful girl, yeah, and behind closed doors, that thing. Right, There's yeah, story. yeah, he was saying he had his moment. Yeah, uh, behind closed doors was, but you know, the funny thing about Charlie Rich was he was out of Arkansas and he was studying. He was a very literate cat. He was, I mean, really musically, yeah, he was a jazz piano player, right? And studying, I think, at Arkansas State, and he went to Memphis and had an audition with um, with um, Jack Clements, right? You know, the, who produced Jerry right. Lee and everybody, and and uh, worked with Sam Phillips. You know, after Elvis left, Jack was and Johnny Cash, all that, you know, Home of the Blues and all that stuff. You know, was with Jack Clements, and he wrote what was he, he wrote. Guess things happen that way. I think was him. I don't like it, but I guess things happen that way. Anyway, Jack he auditions Charlie Rich, and he said, "Yeah, not bad, kid." He said, "You're really good. You're a very sophisticated, accomplished musician, aren't you?" And he said, "Well, I've studied this, sir." And he said he dropped the needle on one of Jerry Lee's forty. They had just done hadn't released. He started playing Jerry Lewis. He said. You know, son, he said, when you can play that bad, why don't you come back and see me? <laughs> <laughs> when you can play that poorly, come back and see me, right? That was, and then Charlie wrote, he did sign with Son and he put out Lonely Weekends. That was when his Son record. And it was like Orbison, they didn't have, they didn't blow up on Son. You know, Roy had. But Ubi to Dubian. this day, people don't realize how different Nashville and Memphis are. Oh, very Unless different. you're a student of the game, they hear Nash, Nash. Memphis is like Mississippi. Oh yeah, you got the Arkansas. It's like a whole different thing. Yeah, it's another world. And and uh, and even Elvis. There was a story that I heard uh, heard George Klein tell on the Elvis Channel one time about when Sam Phillips sold Elvis, the sold the contract to RCA. Right. He right. warned of. He said, "Now Elvis, he said, you're going to be around those guys, and and uh, they're going to." You know, start cutting. He said, They're going to try and change you because they're not be, they don't understand you. He said, I guarantee you, they will not understand what you've done and what we've done. He said, And you're a really good singer, Sam Phillips. This is what he told Elvis. He said, And don't let them change you. He said, And don't let them change your band because you've put your sound together. You know, Elvis and D, uh, DJ, the drummer, Fontaine, you know, who'd come on board with him the last year and a half before he signed with RCA. Right. Because they were a trio first, which is Scotty and Bill Black and, you know, upright bass and Elvis. He said, man, he said, well, people don't realize that's Elvis playing that rhythm guitar and all those Sun records, that slap, boom, bah, because there's no drums. He said, and, and I never played with a guy that had a, as good a right hand on the guitar as Elvis he said, or that sang with the sense of time. That's what people don't get about Elvis Presley, you know, is how good a singer he was in terms of that's why rock and roll became rock and roll in capital letters. And Little Richard, which uh, there's a new documentary on him, uh, yeah. I Am Everything, which is I, I've, I like watching. Richard, you ever meet Little Richard? Uh, huh? Oh, yeah. Little, oh, he, the funniest thing about Richard is, he was the same guy yep. on and off stage. Yep. 
he was little Richard. <laughs> it was like, right. so he would come and he would see me, and I mean, he'd grab me, oh, baby, come here. And, he'd, <laughs> he, and, you, and everybody had to pray with him. You know, you had to pray. Prayer circle, Marty Stewart had me. They were cutting over, uh, I don't know if it was a, I don't know what, if it was a Don Imus record that we were all doing. Anyway, he, and he said, you got to come over here, man. He said, I got Richard of the Village Recorders, and I went over that night and we hung out. And he spotted me. He was living at the top of the old, you know, the Rock and Roll Hyatt on Sunset. Right. You know, he was living there for a year or so, and I was doing a video on the roof, and he caught me then. And he was just always really, really kind to me. And, and uh, the few interactions I had with him, he was just, a, you know, a sweet guy. Uh, and you got to feel, when you watch this, you feel what a, what a shattered, kind of torn soul. You know, he... Boy, the the original version of Tutti Frutti. I'd never heard the original <laughs> lyrics till that documentary. <laughs> right, right, right. Tutti Frutti, good booty. <laughs> it was like yeah. wow. And uh, but anyway, so he precedes Elvis, and, can, and and of course the Pat Boone stuff of you know is is something. It's like you know, it's like wow, it's sacrilegious. But Elvis. And I understood when DJ talked about, he said, yeah, but you got to understand, man, what he, and he actually was ahead of Richard regionally. You know, he was out in 53, 54, 5, you know, those three years. And Richard doesn't hit till that day in New Orleans with uh, uh, the, the, the session drummer, Earl Palmer, talked about it. He's like, man, we all went to lunch. Richard said, and they didn't know I played piano. They had him stand there doing R&B, like thinking he'll just be this guy, stand there and sing, sing blues R&B. He said, I didn't want to do that. They didn't understand. He said, at lunch, they all went over to this little dive that nearby and had a piano in there. And he said, and Richard got up and started playing. And we're like, what the? F-? And he started Tutti Frutti. And Earl Palmer said, I, we'd never seen anything like that or heard anything. He said, that was like Tutti Frutti, good booty. like... And so they went back, and the guy that was the A&R guy, I can't remember his name now, it's in the documentary, but he goes back over and, and says to the owner of uh, 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 whoever's studio they had him in there, uh, uh, not Caruso, but uh, uh, anyway, that because that label, uh, which is L.A.-based, I think, that, that he was on, right, that decided to go with it, when he went in and said the A&R cat, he said, "Hey, he just did something over there. We got we, now. We got to clean the lyrics up." And there was a staff woman who, and she, she's interviewed now. She said, "It was nasty, <laughs> nasty, nasty." And Richard, cut the and He said, "No, that wasn't bad. That was just her mind." I said, <laughs> "Her mind? You know, you're literally saying it, Richard." But so you, between the two, Elf, Richard has that hit. But again, it was ostracized to to race stations, right? Black right. radio. And it had to find the white audience. And Elvis, you know, doing that, um, you know, it was just... And so I'm a kid that the, mem- the the sun stuff was with me from the time I was a baby. I was an Elvis freak, but Mystery Train, you know. And and then by the time I got to high school, I, that album, they re-released, you know, the sun album. Right. The sun records as a collection. Right. And I had them. And I had them, and I knew. That's when I knew. I said, but this is... And I was listening simultaneously at the same time, same window, Credence. You know? One of the first albums... Well, the first record I ever bought by myself was at this this uh, shopping center. And it was a, 
an old, you know, apothecary drugstore with record racks, you know, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. My mom, I had money of my own from whatever allowance I got from working, chores, stuff around the house. And and I had, you know, a few dollars, and I I bought Roy Orbison. They did a re-release of Pretty Woman, but the song that I found on the backside, it was a double single. It was They were both singles, but it was re-released uh as a spotlight series, it was Candyman. And Candyman was cut monument in Nashville, you know, post the Memphis stuff, with the first ever uh, uh, playing on record of harmonica by Charlie McCoy, who goes on to become a great harmonica session right. player. But it, it opens with... I'm... That song fascinated me to this day. Come on, baby. And that was the extension of the Elvis thing. Because the other stuff with Roy, I love Pretty Woman. I love all, but it's a little more operatic. And Candyman was swinging, man. It was in that groove, that shuffle. And, And Elvis, especially the Sun stuff. And I found it, that was the first single I bought. Album album was probably Cosmos Factory. Because I was on my bike still, I rode from this this uh, you know box store that had started you know sprung up by the early seventies. There were these things, and it, and it had racks of music. And I I was looking through, and I found the Cosmos Factory because I wanted tracks off of that. And then I bought Green River. I brought the preceding things that I heard singles. Green River was the first one I bought. Yeah, I was born great. on the Bayou, <laughs> unbelievable. Oh, how how great, huh? I mean, born on the Bayou, right? Because I mean, I mean, all of it. But anyway, so I'm listening to that and this re-release, this stuff they were rediscovering, you know, of the Sun stuff of Elvis, you know, because the Brits all knew that. And yes, I was listening to the Beatles because of my mom with that AM radio, and I was hearing those hits, and I I really got, and when you see the Get Back documentary, you see the two of them looking up at each other at one point later in the, in the movie, you know, after George leaves and then comes back. And they're staring, and and John and George just by just by osmosis begin singing "Bye Bye Love" identically to the Everleys. Right? You realize they loved it. They loved that music. They loved that stuff. And uh, um, so I could hear that in there. I could find it in the Beatles. I understood it. I you know yeah. I was listening to the Beatles and. Um, I've done homages to them. You know, you and I, well, we did, you know, right. uh, I've just seen but, a face. Right. But when you come to L.A., mm-hmm. this is not the music that's being signed no. and played on the no, radio. But, but I get here in 77. In 78, I'm up on the strip one night, one day. In the afternoon, I'm roaming around and looking at Tower. Because I'm living in Long Beach, and I hadn't moved yet up here. I was driving. Okay, Joe, why Long Beach? Because that's the cheapest beach town. Well, the buddy of mine and I came out. I said, dude, we can't live down in landlocked Orange County. We, it's like we've come this far. That's but what see, I always say. Come this far, you got to be able to be by the beach. No, you either got to be in Hollywood. We should be right in Hollywood or on the ocean, all right? So we started in Santa Monica. He goes, okay, okay. We started in Santa Monica because we were staying with his relatives in Tustin, right? And so we drove up, spent a whole day driving. We start in Santa Monica, and we can't afford any of that, right? Santa Monica, Venice, we just go down 
down Route 1. We're down Pacific Coast Highway going all the way into the, then we get to the Manhattan Beach and Redu- we can't right. afford that. And we get over and we come over. I said, what about this thing? I'm looking at a map. There's somebody, come on, get back on the freeway. And we cross, you know, over the, what would have been San Pedro and roll into Long Beach and we go down there and the old pike was there, the amusement park. It was still a rundown ocean town, you know, right. harbor town, Long Beach. And the apartments were literally de- on ninth place, right dead ended of the beach for nothing and we got this little single you know with a bat you know a little tiny kitchen and he only stayed about three months he left by the last week of june and i was there okay well why did he leave how much of it was a struggle and what happened to him he just didn't he never i think i looking back he wanted to visit his aunt and uncle and was hell-bent on delivering me to la he knew i'd already been to nashville a couple times and in 76 76 it was, if you did, I didn't know, and I've said this to Steve Earle, I said, I didn't realize that those houses were the business, the publishing houses, right? right? Music Row, it's quiet. There was no, there was lower, there was lower broad, but it was just a few drunk bars, and there was Printer's Alley, which Boots Randolph had a club, and it was, you know, it was a nightclub thing, but there was no live music, not like L.A. or New York, or, you know, and it was, it was the quiet, they got up, 9 a.m. They had coffee and were writing songs, <laughs> right, right. right? You know, they're cutting them with the. I didn't know that that that's how you did it there. And I went there a couple times. I auditioned for the Grand Ole Opry Park, the Opryland, and I got a slot in January as as an alternate. And they said, "Well, yeah, you come back in the summer if, if somebody gets sick or they get fun, we'll pull you in." And he said to me, "Do you really want to do that?" I said, "No." I said, no, "I guess we're." He said. Man, you're coming with me, and he and he paid for the gas, and I didn't have you know a couple hundred bucks. We packed everything I owned, which was nothing. My guitar had an old, I had a K at that point, big open sound hole K, and um, he deposited me on the West Coast. And then by he his plan was all he wasn't staying. You know. Well, how did you feel when he abandoned you? Not not crushed because I kind of preferred to be alone. <laughs> I'm an old scout. I was like, you know, I wanted my own room. I never had a roommate. I stayed in the smallest little apartments on the face of the earth just to live alone. <laughs> I never shared the space because it would interrupt my. I, I knew what it was. It would interrupt my thoughts and what I needed to do, and you know, write and to try and create songs. I knew then you had to write. You know, you had to create your material, and so. No, what was going on out here then? I mean, you had you had the burgeoning L.A. punk thing, but I don't even think Los Angeles had come out yet. The X hadn't happened. No, but you still had Fleetwood Mac. You had all the you know right. that stuff. You know, the other end of the spectrum of country rock had become the new pop. Right, the Eagles right. had now become the pop rock act. Fleetwood Mac was everything, and you know, and and then you started hearing in the summer of '77. I remember, I think, watching the Detectives. Elvis and the attract the English new wave started coming. Right. So 78, I'm up at Tower Records one afternoon and, and stumble around looking through, and there's free tickets, like you know, highlighted tickets to the Whiskey A Go. There's a show that night, and it's Robert Gordon with Link Ray and and Really? Yeah. And Robert Gordon at the time had had on FM, I would hear on the weird, I don't know if it was KROQ or whatever, but he had a revival rockabilly thing of 
uh, I forget who the band was that did Black Slacks. Right. Black Slacks. Remember that? Of and course. Robert Gordon was out of DC and he and he had well the first the opening act that night was uh was Billy Zoom pre X. Billy Zoom, the guitar player from X, had a rockabilly band. And he's Oh yeah, right, right, back, right. And he had that duo and he was out there slamming it. And he was out and it was one of the last gigs he ever did because he told Pete Anderson at the time told me Larry he said, Yeah, he told me he said I, you aren't going to believe this. He said, I've been trying to do what I do great for years. He said, I've just put this band together just doing, we're doing trash punk. He said, and we're signed. <laughs> he said, we're doing it. It was X. He said, they right. brought out and then did John Doe and Xene. They did Los Angeles and it was the cultural explosion of that. But I go in there and see Robert Gordon with Link Ray. That was one of the loudest things I've ever heard to this day. Nothing louder than Link Ray because he would open do a couple of songs. He did Rumble, of course, you know. I mean, it was a sight to see. And the blasters were somehow connected because Ronnie Weissner or whatever this guy, this he was either Czechoslovakian or Hungarian. He was a little guy that was out of his mind. He saw me leaning on a pole because I, you know, you're you you just want to drink in every single second of any of it. So I stayed, they the show's over. And they've all but turned the ugly lights on, and they're tearing. You know, they don't run you out of the whiskey. They just stand right. there if you want to buy a drink. And I'm leaning against the pole just watching, just to watch it. You know, watch them tear down the gear. Watch them carry it to the curb. Watching everybody. And I'm alone. And I'm. And this guy comes in running, Weisner. I, I, I think it was Weisner. Yeah. Anyway, because he goes, what you do? What do you do, man? And it's like an in, broken English, Eastern European accent. I go, for you, I think, man, I said, well, I do. I said, he said, you a musician? Because he's just looking at me. And I'm leaning on, and, you know, at that point, I'm more of a David Essex look than anything. I've got boots on, but I got, you know, bells. It's bell-bottom blues right at that point in L.A. I'm leaning against the wall, and he goes, what kind of music? I said, well, you know, kind of country rock, for lack of a better description. You know, I'm letting him right. know I'm, so that we're, he goes, ah, fuck it. You know, you need to rockabilly, rockabilly, rockabilly. That's what's <laughs> I'm like thinking rockabilly. I'm like, dude, I know rockabilly from the inside out. I mean, I was born to rockabilly. And that was my first experience when you said what was going on here. Right. Was that moment. Think about 78. You're already here. You're in the business, yeah. right? It's the change, the shift, right? Petty comes out looking like a 70s rocker, but playing like New Wave, right? You right. Know, you know what I mean? That's the dichotomy of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I even saw the them name. all at the whiskey. Tom Petty, Elvis it, Costello, well, Joe Jackson. Band, even the band. Joe Jackson, yeah, right? You know, And even the band. Was Joe Jackson watching the detectives? No, that was Elvis. That's Costello. Elvis. But what Joe Jackson was... Um, uh, he is really she really one, going out one, with him one more time? Goes on uh, and on. The, the, but the Sunday hit, papers. The anyway... And Joe Jackson was the sharp, you know, the two tone shoe, right. you know, man. So, so look sharp, yeah, really sharp, sharp, yeah, the Teddy Boy shoes, right, the needle point. But, but uh, that's the moment, and I'm thinking, man, you know, when the tide comes in and goes out, you know, it's when you can beach comb, you can go up and down and find. The leftovers, you know, see what's going to happen. 
And I, I just had a sense that there was going to be this moment. And I, because I had known about the whole Buck, Merle, the whole traditional country that was out here, Capitol Tower, the Capitol Records sound, the Bakersfield sound. Right. And it led to, and I knew it begat Chris Hillman, the Birds, Sweetheart, which begat Burritos, which gives Linda Ronstadt the footing. You know, they all, that ming, commingling, and then by Eagles and Emmy Lou. And those records with Brian Hearn were the beacon that drew me. I thought, that's what I am. That's me, you know, with the pertinence of that. The John Prine thing, I didn't finish. They cut that album on him in Memphis. That first album was, again, one of the seminal moments, the revelatory moments of my life in terms of, in terms of um, my own family's experiences. Remember I said the epiphanous moment that I felt I had, you know, at 15 or 16, riding in the back of that car down Route 23 with my mom and my aunt. And I thought, John Prine and the song Paradise, about his own family moving from western Kentucky up into Illinois and Chicago. And he articulated, and I thought, that's what it is. And it's almost like having to be moved so far away from it, so far removed, that I wrote Read and Write in Route 23 about those taillight baby years. You know, when we would leave on a Friday evening after they got off work, uh... Yeah, have you ever seen folks pull up in a hollow after work on Friday night? Have you ever, you know, Prestonsburg, Kentucky, all that stuff. It was, I realized it's pertinent. It's pertinent because it's me. It's pertinent to my, you know, my expression musically in my life. But John Prines, who inspired me to self-examine and think. And it's like, what was it? They, I, I read that, that uh, Dickens wrote all the great stories about London in the winter, right? Christmas Carolina, living on the Tuscany coast in Italy when he had moved far removed, you know, on the Mediterranean coast in Italy, uh, you know, living expatriate as, you know, out, as a Londoner out of it. And he wrote from the vantage point because you're able to see, I think you pull focus when you write about, the elements of your own life. I when I read you we, from your distance, right? You're able to see from the distance with a greater degree of clarity what it was you came from. You know, Connecticut, the whole scene. When you talk about your dad and the liquor store and the you know all of it, right? The ice cream, the ice cream. You know, I, I mean, it's visceral when you write. It's visceral, and that's what people love to read. That's why they read. You know, I mean, you you haven't have you. And I'm, excuse me if I'm insulting you by not knowing that you you haven't published in book form, have you? No, I mean I You've have got a, to uh, Bob. Well, uh, I mean, t- just taking a detour here. If you talk to the major people, they only want fiction because I said I would do this. Then I had publishers who would do it. But the advances were like ten to twenty grand. You can't but afford it, to do it. You can't take the no, time. No, no, no but. Yeah. No. When I hit send, I reach more people than all these people who read their Absolutely. Like their books. But I think a collection of all of it, Bob, has to happen, and somebody's going to well, do I, it. I was thinking once my you're gone, talk, right? But the other thing about it is, nothing sells itself these days. Not only making it is not the hard part. Then you got to go out and, and flog it. Yeah. And yeah. 
That's both time but, and not quite my personality, but I hear you completely. It's not your nature, no, but I'm telling you, there are enough people that know that would love to have it all in one space and in a, in a, in a hardback version. I think people would love reading, and especially... I mean, you've got volume. You could do more than one book. It's like you could just do <laughs> just the things you've written about your family would be, a, you know, would be its own, you know, tome of 400 pages. You know, you would have. But so the visceral nature, what the John Prine album, that first one where he's on the Bale of Hay, which has Sam Stone. Right. Uh, it has, has uh, uh, your flag decal won't get you into heaven anymore. I mean, all that, but Paradise. Spanish Pipe Dream. I used to play that in nightclubs out in the corral in the Lakeview Terrace. Uh, Foothill and Osborne, there was a cowboy bar that was hardcore. They would ride down from up there to Tohunga, and that ain't Topanga. And people that ever, I know Tohunga, believe yeah, me. Sunland Tohunga ain't Topanga. Don't confuse <laughs> the two because the hippies are in Topanga. The bikers that sell meth are in Tahunga. <laughs> it's like Exactly. But I played for a year straight the off nights. The year John... John Lennon was killed on the night that I drove into work and got in there and we heard and Delaney Bramblett lived down the road and we came in, he was torn up and got up and played with us just to just to give tribute a couple a couple of John's songs. And uh uh so my experience this is like nineteen what was it, eighty, because he had died in December of eighty. But I'd been in there um playing Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Because I wasn't good enough to play the weekends, they were fearful right. that I wasn't. Because I wasn't, I wasn't doing. I just wouldn't, you know. I was doing Bill Monroe and doing some Merle. I was doing, you know, it was it was hardcore, you know, hillbilly stuff. I did because to that point, once I got here and found just my headspace around it, I realized with the vantage point I had, dude, that's what the car ride was about. Who I and my who 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 I was by the birthright of my family, you know, and who I where I was born, and I need to take this, and I need to, you know, pay tribute to that and those people that gave me a chance, you know, to to get away from mining coal as a way to make a living. Okay, you're out, you know, to hunger. You're playing the weeknights. <laughs> yeah. Okay, the nature of being in your 20s and the nature of someone who actually made it, on some level you're happy, on some level you're incredibly frustrated. I'm out of the far end of the valley singing Bill Monroe, and the, the billboards are on sunset and everybody's touring. How am I going to get from A to B? Well, that happens because as fate would have, like I said, you you sense the tide, the, you know, the changing of the tide, right? You know? 78, 79. So 80, that entire year I'm out there, you know, and it's still a life-altering experience. I mean, I'm learning. Oh, yeah. You're From the bandstand, you see life go by every number. You see them dance past on that dance floor, and you're watching from the fist fights to the, the, to the heartache to the screaming matches. You know, you're in there long, five sets a night, you get an education. And I'm writing. I'm writing songs. I'm driving an air freight during the day, airborne, getting off work, rolling out there, and in between, and on the weekends, I'm writing. It won't hurt about those people when I fall down from this bar stool. There was, I mean, there was a woman, I won't give her name, it's just a difference, but she was. I think it's hilarious you drove airborne 
I just, used to use Airborne the, all the time instead yeah, of Yeah, Airborne was a competitor to FedEx yeah, or exactly. Emory, right? There were three. Emory, right, was the purple, right. thro- the van. And Airborne was the red and black, you know, and then FedEx was the purple. They were all, yeah, I used drove, to have that like silver, red, and black van. Yeah, would silver, come red, up, and black was a, <laughs> I had a red shirt and a crack of dawn. And so I'm driving Airborne Air Freight and, and, this bar, there was a woman that would came came in there almost every night, and I won't give her name. It's just, and they called her Lady something, and it wasn't ladylike behavior. She was the screamingest. She'd be down at the end of the bar, and about the third set, she would go off and start because somebody would be looking at her. She thought from down the others, it was an L-shaped bar, and this place probably held two hundred people. I mean, it was a good sized bar. I mean, you know, and it had it. L-shaped uh, building that in in the front, this is how rough this was, how hardcore. Their banner across the corral, the, you know, the outside of it said, Cock- open for cocktails 6 a.m. Okay? <laughs> because they had they had a breakfast counter, okay? So they were close from <laughs> 2 to 6. And they served breakfast. That is morning. hardcore. I was, I was asleep on the stage one day. And because my drummer, a guy named Stu Perry, who lived in Tahunga, that's how I got to know Tahunga. Well, he had pit bulls, and it, I remember, never forget, Stu was so upset one night when I, I'd give him a lift from there to get him to the, he was a great drummer. He'd been on the Dick Clark tours, and remember there was a guy around town named Jimmy Rabbit? He was a radio personality. Of had course. Jimmy Rabbit, right? Not to, not related to Eddie Rabbit. Not, right, right. And, and he was a, you know, a bar band guy, but but had local fame because of radio. You know, he was a right. radio now, a DJ, I guess. And so Stu played with him, but he played with everybody. I mean, he knew, you know, Delaney Bramlett, and he had played over the years because Stu had been. So Stu was playing drums for me because this guy from Oklahoma who had helped me get my first demos done through a guy, Western Recorder, United Western, at, the, at that time. Those were where I made my first demos. And Wait, 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 wait. This guy who helped you, who paid for that? How did the you know, well, Western's a real studio? Yeah. No, no. What happened was this drummer I had, Stuart, uh, 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 Stuart Perry, replaced him because Richard Coffey was a guy that I met through another guy from Tulsa. There's this whole weird, you know, Tulsa's a weird music scene. They don't know if they're, <laughs> uh, they don't know if they're over, under, sideways, down, right? there Because the culture, the continent meets, it's the South meeting the Northeast, Midwest. It's oil money. It's big oil money. You know, the Phillips Petroleum Fortune's there, Phillips 66. They've got one of the great museums of art there, but they are Okies, you know, on top of it. Leon Russell is the example, right? right? He comes out of, you know, so the drummer, Richard Coffey, who's from Tulsa, who I met through another Tulsa character. They are characters, the guys that come to him. Even Tom Petty has a Tulsa connection. Mud right. went through there, right? And Tom Petty, if I'm not mistaken, I've, what I've read, he played bass on a Tulsa record by Dwight Twilley. I'm on yeah. fire. Remember that? Which had Phil Oh, Seymour. I own it, of course. I'm on fire. Huge record in L.A. Oh, you don't, you don't, you don't. God, no love. And, and, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Phil Seymour was really turned he out to be the talent. And then he put out a solo album. Then he died very quickly. Yeah. very. He had cancer, I guess. And But but he was the drummer for Dwight Twilley. And, and right, Tom but he also played bass. And he also sang it a lot. I went to see Dwight Twilley at the Madame Wong's. Oh, my God. And, and, well, Phil 
then had the Plimsolls. That was his band, right? Wasn't no, that the Plimsolls was the guy who went folky and went on Geffen. Oh, God, the one who was married to the woman, uh, uh, Lucinda, not Lucinda Williams. Lucinda Williams? Somebody, somebody Williams. No, wait, not Lucinda Williams. Uh, Lu Lucinda. No, it wasn't Lucinda. Her name was Williams. How come I can't remember the name? I'll, I'll look this up in a minute because the guy from the Plimsoll has been in L.A. forever and he changed from being a rocker to be a country. Uh, Peter Case. Peter Case. That was his band. You're right. The Plimsolls. Phil, Phil Seymour, and I've misstated that a few times over the years. Phil just went on to Geffen and had a solo thing, right? Phil Seymour. I think it was on Arista. I own the album. On Arista? I, for some reason. But it was all that Denny Cordell stuff at that point, which was Leon's label, right? They shared Shelter Records. Right. right. And Denny Cordell, who is famous for flippers, the roller rink, right, at the corner of La Cienega and Santa Monica. Oh, believe me. Believe where they would have me. everybody, the King Bees played in the middle, because I knew those guys. And I would go watch them try to get out there with their gear in the middle of the roller rink. It was in that whole rage of, you know, Cher was in there roller skating. And yeah, it's crazy. I, okay. Anyway, so, so. Wait, wait, wait. King, P, King Bees Jamie and Paul James, Warren, yeah. they used to play everywhere yeah. all the time. Yeah. As far as Flipper's roller disco, I certainly went there and roller skated. But you remember when Reagan was shot and they delayed the Oscars by one day? I and even that, that second day. Second day was Prince at Flippers. At Flippers? Okay. I at didn't Flippers. know Prince It was on the Dirty Flippers. Mind album. Oh, my God. I went there. Maybe there were 30 people in the audience, and he did wow. the whole act. He's jumping on the bed oh and everything. God. Unbelievable. In the middle of the roller rink. Well, that's L.A., and that's where we were. You know, it's 1980, 81. So 80, and then it bleeds into, yeah, 80 to 81, because I'd switched from playing driving air freight i took a job uh with united couriers the uci they were that red dot we i drove bank checks right uh and the armored car company you know that's like anyway because i'd started i'd gone back to la city college like i mentioned to you earlier and was fooling around with that and uh you know thinking, well, I guess, you know, if it doesn't happen by the time I'm 30 or 31, I'm probably 27 at that point, I'm thinking I better at least re, you know, recalibrate or something. <laughs> and so I am doing that in the daytime. And, and Richard Coffey leaves me with Stu Perry as a drummer, but he also introduces me to a house engineer at United Western. His name's Gordon Shryock. And he was this real tall, lanky, like 6'2", with a, he was a redheaded guy that had curly red hair, like a, you know, a natural. And, and he had a band called uh, the Mundane Whirl Willis World Review. That's a very Tulsa kind of take on life. The Mundane Willis World Review. But he was a staff engineer. And he did Andre Crouch. He did Natalie Cole, you know, at, at United Western Engineering, right? I mean, everybody. And he knew Leon really well, you know, and. And he heard me sing, and I played these songs. He said, now, now, dig. And he said, that's good stuff. So he decided, he said, but they're going to call this rock and roll because it's so, you know, hillbilly. And we cut. And they're on my 30th anniversary 
re-release of Guitars Cadillacs and on the box set uh, in 2002, I think we put that out, a three or four CD box set, Reprise Please Baby. But they're on the re-release of the Guitars Cadillacs, uh, the 30th anniversary deluxe edition of that, those demos. And it's interesting to hear because Gordon put together um, Glendy Harden on piano, I'm getting off driving. I was still driving Airborne at that point, actually. I was getting off to Airborne and going to United Western because he had spec time. So there was no charge. And he was he said, okay, well, if we make this go, if I get you signed, if I do, I'll I'll take half the publishing. You know, he was gonna own part of the pub. That's why I would do it on the on the spec, right? And I said, oh, you know, okay. I look back now. So dodge the bullet. I you know, I didn't didn't give it away. And but but uh, we cut, I think we cut eight or nine tracks in there. And and he had some connections in Nashville. I went down there and pitched around, and they just looked at me. But I, I, I did Glendy Harden on piano. Um, David Mansfield played fiddle and mandolin. Okay, wow. that Yeah. I mean, coming right off of Days of Heaven, you know, the, the, the film, the Michael Cimino, right? And he come well, out. Well, David the, also was in the Alpha Rolling, band, Rolling Thunder Review, right? Right. He's on with exactly. Dylan. I mean, he was the prodigy. But so David's right. playing the mandolin fiddle on those demos. Glendy Harden on piano. Uh, Jerry McGee on guitar. You know, Jerry McGee from the Ventures and Monkeys, and again a Wrecking Crew guy peripherally. Uh, and Robert Wilson, this young bass player out of New Orleans. So that's what. And and then we had. Uh, I'm trying to remember the steel players that did it. So. That's what I'm doing. It didn't cost me anything. I showed up, you know, after work at night, and we cut in the smallest room over there where we tracked at a parquet floor. It's now Studio D because uh, they have no. It's now Studio Four, but it was it was uh, uh, one is the big room over there. Studio One, Two, and then Three. Rick Rubin loves Studio Two over there a lot. That's a. I mean, those studios, and I would be standing, and I cut vocals then out in the big room which Sinatra built. I learned a lot of this later. I'm like, what an auspicious start to that. I'm cutting for the first time in a real studio in L.A., and it's with this guy, Gordon Shry, all this Tulsa connection. And so I did that, and I had those demos, uh, you know, uh, in, in hand, and had kind of gone to Nashville for a brief time to visit. My dad was in Louisville. I took his truck, got to Louisville, and drove down a... Uh, and drove to Nashville and spent days down there trying to get somebody to listen and look at this stuff. And it was the songs that made up parts of the first three albums, you know, eventually. And a couple of them were, became big hits, and they just kind of looked at it and blinked and didn't quite know what to make of me or what to do with it. And that's when things changed, and we can pick it up on the next one. Yes, Dwight, I think we've come to the end of the feeling we've known there's a whole nother story when you emerge on the national stage. We'll get back to that. But want to well, thank you. The other side of the hills, on the Hollywood side of the hills. Well, you know, then there's there's that, and, and then, then there's the national, the 21st moment. century, which we're still figuring out on so many levels. <laughs> From what I now? mean, you had a, you had a kid, so it makes sense. The rest of us are still wandering through the universe trying to figure out what's going on. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. The, but, kid, the kid just looks at me. He was on a phone with me a few minutes ago. What's it? Okay, Daddy, hang up, Daddy. 
<laughs> so oh, little kids, off. right, right, yeah. right. They don't, <laughs> hung up on me, and then she made him call back. He's like, sorry, dude. <laughs> you don't ever have to apologize to me. You just anyway. Well, I'll let I'll let you get back home to him. Well, I'm, uh, gonna, I'm actually head to the studio. I'm going to stop there and go. I'm trying to finish this record. So, but I, you know, Bob, thank you for having me. And it's it's well, it's you know, it's to you. I'm a, you know, it's I'm a great talking to you because. It makes all that stuff that I have in my brain important than my parents. You know, when are you going to stop buying records? For this girl I live with, I didn't think I was moving in with your records. Oh, no. And, you know, all these cultural references mm. that mean so much to well, us. You and I, we got to talk about that, and we got to talk about free and how good All Right Now is. I mean, the stuff that we, I, that's the best song ever played on a, on a state fair or county fair midway. Because you know who played it? The guy doing the Himalayan ride. Remember that ride? The Himalayan yeah. was the sled. Because I was not a ride freak. I'd, I'd get motion sick real quick. But that ride with the mirror ball in the moon, the guy was up there, ex-Connor and escapee. The microphone <laughs> around his neck going, you want to go faster? That's all I would yell. And it would be all right now. <laughs> like every well, the other thing, do you have, it was a double CD. Now there are no CDs. There's a free anthology called Molten Gold. Mm -mm. I was a free fan. I bought that album, Fire and Water. There is shit on that album. You know, there's yeah. uh, I'll Be Creeping. No, I never which did. Has I just, this, all I knew was all right now. Okay, and they have the Steeler. Do you know the Steeler? I've heard the Steeler. I haven't. I haven't because even Bob, you know, Bob Seeger had all those. Bob Seeger was on Capitol. Right. Went to Warner Brothers. Then back to Capitol. When he went back to Capitol, that's when he had a success. Happened, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, the, all silver, the, records the original on Silver Bullet Man was on Capitol, right? Yes. That was, he came back with the Beautiful Loser album in 1975. Right. right. But all the albums that he made on Warner Brothers, he refuses to release. Really? Which wow. is just positive. Well, you and I have to talk about the insanity of fighting streaming. Come on. You know, you, it's not, that horse is out of the barn. You're not going to bring it back. You know what I mean? And it's like the story. Oh, believe me, I know. I mean, what people don't know, on Back in 72, which is a great album. Was that one uh, Catman Do? No, Catman Do was on Beautiful Loser. And then on Live Bullet in 75, 6. Okay. But the original version of Turn the Page, which is now seen as a Metallica song. Mm -hmm. Do you know that song? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know Bob Seger's version. Bob Seger. It's it's haunting. It's well, unbelievable. No. No, 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 turn the page, Seger, and that's that Detroit stuff. Because you know Seger was working with Mitch Ryder when he was coming. Right. Out, you know, and Mitch, Mitch. Oh man. And Pete told me a story one day. He said I went and saw Mitch Ryder right after the Peppermint Lounge, and they just released Jenny Jenny and the Blue. Yeah. You know, right. 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 Blue. He said, and they came on stage. He said, at the Fox, we're all down there in Detroit. And he said, we're all jacked up. And he said, and they come on stage and they stand with their backs to the audience and start playing with their backs to the audience. He said, and they do one whole song. They do another song and they're in the third song and they won't turn around. Now he said, Detroit, people are throwing shoes and throwing shit. And, and, and all Seeger did was hold his middle finger up over his shoulder and keep singing with his back to the crowd. 
He said, and then when they turned around on the next song, he said, the place came apart. And I said, well, that's theater, right? That's theater. Well, okay. I got to tell you one more story. My friend Richard Griffiths, who ran Virgin Publishing and Epic and is a manager of One Direction, a million other acts at this point, started out as an agent. And he was the agent for Backstreet Crawler, which was Paul Kossoff of Free's group after Free broke up. Now, Paul was, he's not the bass player, the kid. No, please, the guitar player. Okay, but the kid bass player, you know, wrote that in the dressing room. They came Right, off, right, right, right. They said, we got to have something up to go off. Well, we can't just keep going off with blues. It's down, man. And he's walking around, banging him. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, so anyway, go ahead. Listen, Chris Blackwell, who they were on Island, he says who they were the best act. That was the best act he had. They were just too young, free. free. Well, Paul but in Rogers any event, never not had a hit with anything he's ever done. Any band that he put because the next one's Bad Company. And well, the other thing about Paul Rogers is he can still sing. Oh man, I mean, I, most of those guys cannot, I but had, he can I still deliver. Dreaming. About Paul Rogers was sitting somewhere with me. Just that's weird, because they've asked me to do this duets thing he's doing, and we're trying to schedule and them coming in and out. I think he might have had a little bit of health stuff go on. There's a Paul Rogers album afoot that he's going to do with some people, and I said, "Man, I'm. Are you kidding? <laughs> just a schoolboy when I heard his first Beatles song. Love me. Oh, think it wasn't from there. It didn't take him long. Don't you know?" Don't you know, don't you know, Man, you oh, shoot, that you are shooting star. Don't you know? Ah. Oh, God. Ah. And the second side starts with good loving gone bad. All, all of it. And on the first album, then Seagull. Then he had the firm with Jimmy Page, right? Absolutely. And they had a hit. Then he did. In the 90s, Bobby did the law and they had a hit laying down the law. Yeah, I know because the same manager, the manager of uh, ZZ Top, oh my. was the one who Damn. sent me the record. Well, I still have the record. You can't even find that. <laughs> but in any event, so he's the manager for, uh, he's the agent. Paul Kossoff is the act. Paul Kossoff dies on the plane from New York to London. The opening act is ACDC. But the headliner is gone. ACDC says, we're going on anyway in this club, okay? There are five people there. You walk down the stairs into this club in England, okay? They do the whole fucking act. They carry, uh, what's his name, uh, around on the shoulders. You know, they're playing blah, blah, blah. Right. As soon as, yeah, as soon as the act is over, Angus Young, as soon as the, as soon as the, as soon as it's over, bon the five people, the five people run out of the building and my friend is freaking out. Not only did the guy die, five people came and they immediately left. What they didn't know was they were so blown away that all those five people ran out to the phone booth and called me and said, you're not going to believe this. You have to come back. And for the second show, completely full. All but time. he got fired as the agent anyway. Oh, yeah. All of that. Those, yeah. Yeah. But you talk about theater. It used to be you had to go see the act. Yeah. Because they would never play certain songs from the album again. 
and you would come home and tell people, say, you're not going to believe it. Yeah. It's like, I remember seeing uh, Ziggy Stardust yeah. or Alice Cooper killer said, you're not going to believe it. You have to come with me the next time. Now there's none of that because everybody sees everything. Yeah. Yeah. They think they do, but there's still nothing like it live. You see it live. I saw Steely Dan at Ohio state. They came out with that second day and they debuted. They said, here's something new. We just cut and it was Ricky. Don't lose that number. <laughs> I, was up in the, I was up in the upper deck of that arena. It was an old, where the old basketball arena. And it was up there in the nosebleed in Washington. And as soon as you heard it, you were like, wow, that's a hit. It's like, Ricky, don't lose that number. Okay, one final question. We're going to go. Uh-huh. Who have you not met that you'd like to meet alive? Ooh, wow. Alive. That's the trick. Because there's people that I've not had right. a chance to meet that died that I would have maybe had a chance to meet. I'm trying to think if there's anybody that I've actually I've met Robert Plant uh, and, you know, fan up, you know, guys, somebody that use, I, man, he's, that he's deceased. God, I would have loved to met Sam Cook. You know, I, I'm 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 bending the margins here for your, your parameters, but I but I just think that's one of the tragedies of early death ever, and what a pinky weird deal that was, you know, and and it's still this day I think somewhat dubious as to how he got set up, you know, that night with the, I mean, when you think about what he did, what he was doing, the father of soul, really, Sam Cook, you know, in terms of taking gospel style stuff and bring i mean what he was doing the songs he wrote bob i mean like, anyway so you 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 limited me to somebody alive I, you know what i'll know the next time we talk I'll okay we'll talk leave it here otherwise we'll be talking into the next century in any event i want to thank you dwight till next time this is bob left sex Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the highly anticipated 100th episode of Tank and Jay Valentine's R&B Money Podcast with artist Chris Brown. Even working with you from Carrie Hilson, Adonis. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, I was 15, 14 doing that album. So like I said, I was in school like, yeah. okay, this is how you do it. This is how you make a song. There's a verse, a pre-course, and then a hook. I didn't know none of that. You learned I, that over a summer, bro. That's what I, it felt like. That's what it felt like. 
Listen to R&B Money on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.